My name is Will Spencer, and you're listening to the Renaissance of Men podcast, a place for extended, in-depth discussions about the rebirth of masculinity happening around the world today. My guest this week is helping men and women rediscover beauty, truth, and virtue in today's Western culture, and is a good friend of the Renaissance. He's the founder of the website and YouTube channel, Rewire the West, Evan Amato. This is a time of transformation. As old ways fall, men are called to rise, to heal our lives, grow strong, and transcend our limitations. In tribes around the world, drawing on the best of masculinity from all of time, a new day is beginning. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance. I've been thinking a lot about the term warrior poet. Lots of men use it, even I have, in one of my earliest poetry episodes. If you haven't heard the term before, it's from the movie Braveheart. At the end, Mel Gibson's character William Wallace describes in voiceover narration how his men fought for and achieved Scotland's freedom from England. He says they fought like warrior poets. It's a stirring phrase, but there's a problem. It suggests that the idea of poet isn't implied in the notion of warrior, or that warrior isn't implied in the notion of poet. In other words, that these ideas are somehow in opposition, and that great men fuse them together. With an emphasis on being a warrior, of course. I mean, it's not like the guys at the end of Braveheart actually wrote poetry or, as the narrative establishes, could even read. So what this phrase is actually saying, I think, is that warriors should read poetry, but only because it makes them better warriors, which, in the modern social media age, means that warriors should burnish their self-image by at least being marginally fluent in the arts. Unfortunately, everything about this is wrong. Here's one quick reason. Have you ever written a poem? I mean a good poem, something worthy of publishing. How about a novel? Not science fiction, fantasy, or military. I mean a real novel. Something 500 pages or more in a historical setting grappling with timeless themes. Have you painted an oil painting? How'd that use of perspective go? Or better yet, have you carved a marble statue? How about one 16 feet high, like Michelangelo's David? Or have you cast a bronze statue, even a small one? Okay, okay, maybe you haven't done any of those things. But have you written a symphony? Is it something that the Berlin Philharmonic would perform? Okay, do you even play an instrument? Have you made a piece of clay pottery at a workshop? Okay, maybe watercolor? Finger paint? Build-a-bear? If not, then you see the problem. Most people have exactly zero idea of what it means to achieve artistic excellence. They cannot imagine the lifetime's worth of discipline, sacrifice, and focus required to produce a work of art of even marginal aesthetic value, not to mention theological, cultural, or even moral value. So to them, art appreciation becomes something to burnish their material pursuits with. It's an adornment. In other words, an object. A commodity. This is where the term warrior-poet comes from, this misunderstanding. Because to produce great art is itself the act of a warrior. And to prove my point, I'd like to recommend one of the greatest books written on the subject, The War of Art 
by Stephen Pressfield. In that book, Pressfield makes clear just how much the achievement of artistic excellence is an act of war against the self, against resistance, inertia, mediocrity, the material limits of canvas, clay, brass, words, marble, and more. It is my contention that if warriors genuinely understood what it took to be a poet, they wouldn't say they fought like warrior poets at all. They'd just say they fought like poets. Now, isn't that a stirring phrase? Because what it does is it points beyond these timeless material concerns of body, blood, and steel, straight into the heavens and the holy and transcendent. Men used to journey into these realms. It's where we went to regenerate ourselves, to witness beauty, the thing which men can create but never truly embody. Being called a beautiful man is not a good thing, no matter how it's phrased. Handsome, dignified, high integrity, honorable, trustworthy, honest, dangerous, exciting, these are qualities that men long to be. But beautiful? No. Because that is the domain of women and of art, both of which are places where men go to experience something beyond ourselves, to remind us of our smallness when we try to become little gods, which we have a nasty habit of doing. We've lost all that today, of course. Our world is getting uglier, our attention spans are getting shorter, our historical view is narrower, and our time preference is getting higher. Google it. And so beauty has been relegated to the status of object to acquire, rather than experience to have. It makes beauty small and affordable in our sophisticated modern lives, and it makes our egos safe. Nonetheless, something from within us calls many of us back to beauty, and some of us men can't help but hear that call, and we look across the yawning gap that exists between us and rich experiences of beauty and think, we can't get there from here. Which is why one man is building a bridge. His name is Evan Amato, and he's the founder of Rewire the West, a website and YouTube channel that helps men and women, as the website says, rediscover beauty, truth, and virtue in today's Western culture. The key word is rediscover, as in it's already there. We don't need to create it anew. The West has a centuries-long tradition of the arts that we can turn to, if only we know where to look. And that is Evan's goal, to create resources like books, articles, and YouTube videos that point us in the right direction and kick us in the behind to send us on our way. The website has articles like The Ultimate Beginner's Guide to Classical Music, The Top 5 Shakespeare Podcasts, Dante and Virgil, an analysis of the Divine Comedy Duo, and summaries of Romeo and Juliet, Macbeth, the Aeneid, King Lear, and the Odyssey. His YouTube channel also features titles like Beowulf and Toxic Masculinity, Pop is Porn, Modernity Has Cheated You, Julius Caesar and the Death of Free Speech, and God is Dead. Now what? And if you look close, you might even find a series of five videos Evan and I did together about men's isolation. I've been very blessed by the positive reception that these videos have received, and I'm happy to announce that the climactic fifth episode of the series has just come out. It's some of the finest work I've ever done. I'm so proud of it, and I'd be honored if at some point, either before or after listening to this episode, you'd watch the video, like it, share the video with a friend, and subscribe to Evan's channel. It is my sincere hope that the video reaches men wondering about the meaning of their lives and the meaning of their suffering, and that in some small way, 
it can make a contribution to the renaissance of men, which has blessed my life as well. And it wouldn't have been possible without Evan's generous offer to appear on his channel, which is why I'm thrilled to give him the opportunity on my podcast to share his story, background, interests, and perspectives at length. In this conversation, we discussed the origins of Rewire the West, the mixed blessings of global travel, France as the best and worst country, how art is for the people, our collective loss of the ability to taste art, the Lord of the Rings and religion, and an examination of classical music, including some homework for my devoted listeners that you all won't want to miss. If you enjoy the Renaissance of Men podcast, thank you. Please leave a five-star rating on Spotify, as well as a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Also, I still have codes remaining for Allison Armstrong's Own Your Ultimatums course. So if you head over to Apple, leave a five-star rating and review, and send me a screenshot of your review to info at renofmen.com, I'll send you one of those codes back. Allison's course provides clear instructions on how to have difficult conversations about our requirements, not our needs, desires, or wants, but requirements in our relationship before it's too late. So again, head over to Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star review, and send me a screenshot at info at renofmen.com, and I'll send you a 100% off discount code for Allison's course, Own Your Ultimatums, which you can also find linked in the show notes. You can also find this episode on YouTube, so don't miss it there. And no matter where you listen or watch, please be sure to share this episode and the Renaissance of Men podcast with friends. And just a couple more quick announcements. In 2023, I'm going to be talking much more about the mentorship services I offer for men. I've been quiet about it as I've been building my brand, Content Creation Universe, and this podcast. But with those aspects of my business squared away, it's time to start making more of an impact on men's lives directly. This episode will be the last interview of the year, as I'm going to wind down for the holidays. But before New Year's, I'm going to do an episode where I talk about my mentorship services at length. I'm very proud of them and of the impact I've had on the lives of men who have signed up so far. If you'd like a sneak preview, head over to renofmen.com mentorship and learn all about the program. And stay tuned for that upcoming episode and much more. And if I could ask one more thing. If you listened to my episode with Pastor Doug Wilson and Christiana Hale about C.S. Lewis, you heard me mention how difficult this summer was for me, in addition to reading the Ransom Trilogy. One of the things that helped pull me out of that difficult time was the opportunity that arrived out of the blue from Evan with Rewire the West. It was an enormous blessing to me that helped me set aside the pain that I was experiencing and get to work. Not only that, the opportunity challenged me technically, creatively, and also morally to stand up on camera and defend the ideas that I hold dear. This year would have been very different without Evan, and to help me thank him, please head over to the Rewire the West YouTube channel linked in the show notes, subscribe, and leave a comment on episode 5 telling him thank you. And please welcome this week's guest on the Renaissance of Men podcast, a champion for beauty, truth, and virtue, from Rewire the West, my friend. Evan Amato. Evan from Rewire the West, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Hello, hello. Thanks for having me. And you and I have gotten the, uh, gotten the chance to work pretty closely over the past few months, and we've had a lot of great conversations, and I have such great appreciation for what you're doing with your project and the values that you're trying to bring forward and, and the way that you've 
um, involved me in that and the way that we've been able to work together. And so I've been looking forward to having this conversation because I have so many questions about what it is that you're doing, why, where it came from, and uh, what the vision of it is. So, um, and plus arts and culture and all the other things that we, that we have yeah. a shared affinity for. So I've been looking forward to this. As have I. As have I. The uh, respect is very much mutual. Thank you. Thank you. Well, let's, um, let's just let's start at the best place. Let's start at the beginning. Like where I actually don't know much about your background, believe it or not. Like okay. We've had a lot of conversations, but like, I, know who, I know who you are. I know where you live. I know your values. But it's like, where did this man come from? He emerged out of the forest you know, a year ago. <laughs> That's actually exactly how it happened. Oh, it's amazing. Yes. So okay. um, yeah, we'll next, right, question. next, next yeah. question. Moving um, on. <laughs> so, okay. Actually, some real background from North Carolina originally. Um, my family's not particularly Southern. My um, parents are from, they're both up from, New, uh, from the North. And anyways, grew up in North Carolina and then a big turning point in my life, kind of, you know, normal life up to 16 or so. And then at that point, something unique happened, which is that I got to go to Argentina and spend several months there by myself. And essentially how that kind of came about was I was in a Spanish class in high school and really wanting to learn, obviously, the language and kind of get a deeper, you know, deeper dive into it. And I had been looking up summer programs and whatnot to go to Spain, for example, and kind of practice the language. They're all way too expensive. So in the end, I wasn't really going to go. And then one day I was walking down the hallway and this guy comes up to me. He's like, hey, are you the kid who wants to learn Spanish? I said, um, <laughs> Maybe. yeah, I, I suppose so. I'm one of them at least. Yeah, yeah. He said, all right, well, listen up. I've got a buddy of mine. He's the principal of a high school in Argentina. You're going to send him an email and just see what happens. Like, okay. So it turns out he was like our high school soccer coach. I didn't play soccer or really. I wasn't in that world at the time. So mm -hmm. I, I had no clue who he was. Came to get to know him. But anyways, shoot this uh, principal an email. And he's essentially like, yeah, just buy your plane ticket. Come on down here. We'll find places for you to stay. And you'll get to hang out with us for several months. I was like, wow. Okay. okay. So, so that's how that works. Exactly. So did just that. And it was like, honestly, as, as crazy as it sounds, looking back on it, I have no idea how my parents ever allowed that really to happen. It was the <laughs> first time I had ever been out of the country, much less travel by myself. And so anyways, buy this plane ticket, go down to Argentina. And the only moment of fear or panic, perhaps, I ever had was right when I got off the plane, was going through customs. And everyone was seemingly speaking at 100 miles an hour. And I just said, oh my goodness, this was the biggest mistake. <laughs> and just like, I'm locked into it, you know, but you have to commit. And anyways, did it and turned out to be one of the most amazing experiences of my life, which really changed my life up to this day. So, um, you know, was spent time with a bunch of different people down there. Obviously, the experience of getting to learn the culture and the language really shaped me, um, made friends that I'm still very, very, very close with to this day. And I went back down there a couple of years later in university. I won a grant to go down and, and spend some more time um, doing service actually in one of the big uh, shanty towns that they have. Essentially, like if you know the favelas in Brazil, it's the equivalent of that. Literally a police no-go zone. Um, 
in Buenos Aires, it no water, no you know sanitation, any of that. But yeah. anyways, got to go spend some more time down there. And then after that trip, I I wanted to it, it, it kind of like got the bug going of all right, let's see what else is out there. And I should actually perhaps back up if you really want the whole story between yes. this time. So of, of high school into university, I went to Nashville, Tennessee and got involved in the music industry. So I was doing a bunch of stuff out there, got to do some really fun stuff as well. Like eventually got to work at the Latin Grammys and the actual Grammys. And that was, oh, wow. you know, really fun and, and, you know, cool for a kid of my age. Um, but anyways, at the time I was like, there is no place other than Nashville that I ever want to live. Mm-hmm. And that was my perspective. And there was a bunch of um, artists who I was working with. And anyways, I figured, you know what, like I'll go back down to Argentina and do this thing just kind of cause and went back down there. And then that was the moment where everything changed that trip uh, for whatever reason, but just kind of saw like, actually the one place I can't be is Nashville. Now it's going to have to be, you know, anywhere other than this. Like there's still so much more out there to engage with, to explore. And so from there, I went to uh, Spain for six months. And then once I was in Spain, that was kind of my first exposure to Europe. Where and were you I in said, Spain? I was in Madrid. Okay. Yep. Um, I was in Madrid, got to travel around a little bit though, not only in that country, but to a couple other countries in Europe. Um, but most of the time I was in Madrid. Typically when I travel, I really, I hate to bounce around. I really like to stay in one spot and really get to know it as much as I can. Mm. So anyways, did that. Then once I was in Spain, I thought, um, and this is kind of the story of my life too, Will, is that I'll say never, ever will I ever do this. And then I end up doing it five years later. Yeah. It's a sure um, way to, sure way to guarantee you're going to do it. Yeah, exactly. So there's the thing with like Nashville where I said, never am I going to go anywhere else. And then, you know, a couple months later, it turned into, well, anywhere other than here. And, um, and then I had always, for some reason, disliked French. I don't know. I didn't really have a reason other than natural like- natural for an American. I was, yeah, I was, I was petty and, you know, thought, hey, Spanish is cool or whatever. And then when <laughs> I was in Spain, um, I was like, you know what? Like, why stop with Spanish? Why not learn French? And so then anyways, I went to, I went to France for, um, another six months or so. Um, after that had a really great experience and figured out a way of getting back in the country for, uh, another year after that. Um, and then kind of through other miscellaneous trips and, and work and whatnot. Um, so part of what I was doing in France, actually, I was working with, um, refugees. I've, I've had a lot of experience working with uh, refugees and immigrants, both in the US, in South America, so in Argentina, and also in France in particular. And obviously mm-hmm. the situation um, is very drastically different in all three places. Um, but anyways, I was, I was working in France right up until the time that COVID happened. And then the lockdowns in France were just insane. And I could have stayed a lot longer than I did. But at some point, I was just like, no, I have to go back. Um, Because it was literally, to give an idea, you know, I was staying in a room, I I mean, really small, essentially like room for a, a single bed, a twin bed, and a desk right next to it. And that was it. Um, I was standing in that room and they said, you can go out up to twice a day 
wants to work out for 30 minutes within five kilometers of your residence or something, and the other one to go get groceries only at the grocery store that is closest to you. And so I was just like, this is nuts. I'm going to go back home. And so went back home for a bit. And then once COVID finally started to relax um, a little bit, I ended up getting a job and moved to London. Um, and so lived there for, for you know, close to a year. Um, and then somewhere in between all this, fell in love with an Italian woman and moved out here to Italy and got married as well. Wow. Wow. Well, I think you're, you're uh, a testimony to the value of, of travel. Right, I think a lot of people, mm. um, a lot of people in America, because as as you know, I've traveled a bit, and and one of the things that people always say is like, oh, you know, like twenty percent of Americans have passports, right, stuff like mm-hmm. that. And it's like, well, what what that conceals is the fact that in order for an American to really go anywhere, mm-hmm. you have to cross an ocean, you have to travel mm-hmm. a long way out of America, right? Exactly. And America is an enormous country with basically every other kind of land formation you'd like to see deserts, grasslands, swamps, mountains, like we have, we, ha- we have it all. And well, it's so a continent people, don't, people lose track of that. Like it's a continent, not just a country. Yes. Yes, exactly. And it's, and it's, you know, and, and, and it's expensive to leave. Like mm-hmm. not everyone has access to the funds or the time to do yep. <clears throat> meaningful overseas travel. Yeah. <clears throat> However, those who do right inevitably come back changed as a result of it. You know, you as a as a you went to Spain first, and then Argentina, or was it Argentina first, and then it Spain? was Argentina first. Argentina yeah. first. So uh, and Buenos Aires, right? Yes. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. that's where I, I've been. Uh, I've been to a couple places in Argentina as well, but Buenos Aires is where I started. Lovely. And and that kind of experience. And you were sixteen. Was that how mm-hmm. old you were? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, at sixteen years old to go to a country like Argentina, which which looks like America in a lot of ways, but it's not. It's not, it's definitely not the same, right? It's a, it's a very, well, and what year was this? This would have been like 2000, something like that. Maybe I don't even know how old you are. You might know. Um, I'm trying 2005. to 2005. No, later than that too. Um, I think, boy, 10, 10 years ago or so. Okay. So like 2010. Okay. So yeah, yeah. Around there. Yeah. So I was at Argentina in, in 2016. So, okay. you know, so, but I think at the time when I went to Argentina, there was this big new development on the waterfront, all these shiny glass, mm-hmm. you know, buildings. I don't know if that was there then, but you know, I, I know the neighborhood because I've seen some pictures of your travels. I know, um, where you were that part of that was there. Mm-hmm. Um, the economic situation definitely got a lot worse from when I was there to when you were. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, I revisited the, in 16 as well. I mm-hmm. spent some more time there then. Yeah, yeah where that was... Calatrava bridge is, that sort of, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, like to get to go down to Argentina at that stage and at that age, it can't help but change you, especially for six months. Like it's not a two-week kind of trip. Yeah. Like you get to really marinate in the culture. Like, well, what was that? Like what was, when you landed, what was that experience uh, besides everyone speaking, you know, a thousand miles a minute, you know, which is like, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. but what were some of the cultural things that you did that really impacted you at that stage coming from, coming from North Carolina of all places in Nashville? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, the first time I was there, I think I was really shocked at just the different dynamic and interpersonal relations, specific, specifically familial ones. 
So for example, in Argentina, everyone already, they eat pretty late, you know, like 10 PM is a normal dinner time, but every meal would be, you know, you're waiting for the family to be there. So whether it's waiting to come back from school and have lunch there or waiting for dinner, everyone would wait. Whereas I never, I don't want to, you know, say I never did that. Um, we, we had family dinners growing up, but it was not nearly with the same level of severity in terms of like, we're all going to wait until everyone's, you know, around the dinner table. Right. Um, in Argentina, they also give kisses, um, kind of a European thing, but they give actually on, on each cheek. I remember the first time I made my, a fool of myself in Spain. No, sorry. In France. Uh-oh. When like one of the first times I was there, I, I met a dude and I just like went to give him a kiss on both cheeks, which is like, first of all in France, it's typically just one, but also you only really do that with like closer friends. Yeah. Um, and so anyways, it's just kind of funny, but like in, in Argentina, <laughs> yeah, in Argentina, you do it with everyone. And so, and every time too, that you enter or exit a room, it's like, you're going around, you know, saying goodbye to people and kind of giving them, you know, a kiss. Um, so that, that was a big impact. Mate. I don't know if you got to yeah. drink any yerba mate while you were there. That's I actually got thing. super into that. Like, like really, really into that and With not straw and the whole thing. Of course. No, like not at all the commercialized American crap oh, yeah, yeah, that no. there is. Um, I, I literally like, this is crazy too. I've gotten stopped at customs before because I've had like kibo, kilos of Sherba in my bag. Like uh, not even a joke. Like literally I've gotten, I've gotten stopped before and they're like unpacked. Yeah. And, and they literally like sell them by the kilo. It is, like it is hilarious too. Yeah. Because it's like, you know, think it's, it's, it's not tea, but it, it's kind of like a tea leaf in, in terms of how much it would weigh. So it's not like small little kilos. I mean, it's a big bag, you know, of, so you're carrying like a kilo of this thing and they're like, we're going to have to investigate this. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But anyways, got really into it, like co- started collecting all these mates, different bombichas, all this stuff. Um, but, but the reason wasn't just like, oh, you know, I want to start collecting these things to be cool. It was like, yeah. really, I got into the culture of it, which there is a very, very... Uh, strong culture around it. And particularly if you're drinking with older people, they actually have a, a manner in which it is drunk, drink, however you want to conjugate that verb. Um, so for example, there's someone who, I guess we should maybe explain for people who aren't familiar with it. It's essentially, Yerba Mate is essentially a drink that is very akin to tea on a biological level. It is not tea. Like it's not the same plant as tea. But um, for all intents and purposes, we'll say it's the same. Yeah. And what you drink it out of is a hollowed gourd. Now, you can have different types. You can have an actual gourd. So, you know, a pumpkin squash that's kind of hollowed out and hardened. Um, you can have wood. Like wood is kind of my favorite. Um, you can have plastic. You can have a couple other ones. And you actually have, there's this process that you have to do. You have to cure the mate. So that is that is called the mate, whereas the yerba is the the, that's the tea-like thing. And you actually, you buy the mate and then you have to cure it. There's a certain way that you like um, put old used yerba into it and you let it sit for a couple of days mm. and whatnot and, and you get this. And then anyways, you go and there's a very specific way of how you, um, how you fill the mate with yerba. So you have to fill it in a correct way to where the bombisha, which is the straw that filters out the leaves, um, 
to where that's inserted and is at an optimal level, essentially, to where the, the, the yerba is at a slant so that every time you pour in hot water, it kind of, it, it, um, how would you say it? It sits with the, with the leaves that are already there, but it also trickles in some new ones, some fresh ones. Okay. So you're constantly like getting this new. And then, so that's just like in terms of how you actually prepare the drink. And then in terms of how you drink it, um, again, you have to consider it's this small little gourd that you can kind of fit in the palm of your hand and you'll fill it up and then someone will drink it and you could, you know, drink it just like, and then you're done. Um, that is my straw impression. Mm. So the, you know, the, the, that duration of drink, you know, all right, yes, there we go. Nice. Thank you. Nice. Um, and you're going to drink that. And then you'll give it back to the person who's actually the head of the ceremony, okay? Um, and and they will they'll take it from you, they'll pour it, and then they'll hand it to someone else, right? That person will drink, they'll hand it back to the main person, they will again fill it with water and then pass it to another person. So you're all kind of like sitting around having this. And it's very, it's very specific actually, because you can tell if you're drinking with someone who knows how to drink it versus someone who doesn't. Hmm. Because there's a rhythm to where like, you don't want to drink it too fast, but you also can't let it just sit in your hands. So, because if you let it, um, if you don't drink it, so if you're just kind of holding it and letting it sit there, A, it's going to get cold. B, it's going to make the leaves far too bitter. Okay, Hmm. so you want to avoid that. Um, But you also don't just want to like chug it and then pass it on. So it's kind of like you get it, you sit with it. All right, maybe take a sip. There we go. Sit with it. All right. Maybe like take another sip, sit with it. And then you can finish it off if you want. And then you'll, you'll hand it back. But right. like the, when you're having a conversation with a group of people, it, um, it, there, it creates a, a flow to the conversation, a rhythm, if you will. Yeah. Um, I'd, I'd liken it now to the way that you kind of have to smoke a pipe with the right duration to keep it lit. So you can't chug it because if you, if you try to smoke a pipe too fast, you're just going to completely like run through it. It's going to get really sour. It's going to, you know, burn or go out. Um, it's not bad. It's not good. Um, but you also, you know, you want to be, uh, letting it sit for a little bit, but you also need to like do enough to keep it lit. And so that's on a personal level because of the pipe. But with this mate, what's cool is that you're all kind of doing this communally. So anyways, that was something that um, obviously inspired me enough to go on a tangent about it on your podcast, but no, obviously um, also, you know, influenced me in terms of kind of what I got out of being abroad and seeing just different ways of, of interacting and um, interacting with others, just getting exposed to different customs and and whatnot, and, and being able to apply those to my life as well. So everywhere that I've gone since, you know, I'll, I'll pick up things and you know try to apply them to my life. Um, so, anyways, that's that's probably one of the biggest you know takeaways, at least from that that first trip that I spent down there. Well, let's let's jump off that because I think you said a bunch of really um, a really important and interesting things, particularly around the shared communal experience of mm-hmm. something like that. So, as you were saying, the mate, which I didn't get to experience when I was down there. But I have experience like hookah, right? Okay. Right. And, and then uh, you mentioned pipe smoking. And there mm-hmm. are all these, I guess, overseas practices, you might call them, mm-hmm. that we import them into America. And they're sort of held up as like status symbols, like, oh, look how worldly I am because I do this mm-hmm. thing, right? And maybe it becomes a trend 
because of someone saw something on a podcast or YouTube or whatever. Yeah. But it, but the thing that gets lost is uh, is that this is these are social experiences that are meant to to enhance a group getting together and and being together. You know, like like when you yeah. when you go smoke hookah at like a hookah lounge or whatever in America, you know, here's this here's this pipe that everyone's kind of sitting around and smoking, and they've taken the object out of the context that it would mm-hmm. exist in in a place like Morocco. Right, yeah. where it's a completely different experience, and so what you're yeah. describing in the mate is like, no, it's it's a is a ritual component, like not a religious ritual, but it's a social ritual exactly. that's that's embedded in the culture, and we don't really have those in the United States. You know, I guess sometimes guys will watch a sport like a football game, you know, which mm-hmm. is not exactly the same. Um, we'll go out drinking together, not exactly the same, because yeah. you're orienting your social interactions around this thing that you're all doing together, you know, that isn't, that isn't taking your attention away. You know, it's like you're watching a TV and it's taking your attention away versus mm-hmm. the mate is enhancing. So I think that's really important. Exactly. Americans don't really, I don't, I can't think of any social rituals that we have that are quite like that. I, I think that's accurate. Um, I would add to that, that unfortunately a lot of what happens to America is when you import these things, which is good in itself yeah. Um, to import and to get them, but then we commercialize the heck out of it. That's, yes, that's it's, a, yes. it's really like, like we'll, we'll import it, commercialize it, and then try to fit it into some realm of productivity as well. So for example, like Oof. most things I see of Mate when it comes to the States, it's like packaged in this cold brew thing. And it's like, oh, this is a super healthy tea, which it is, but, but yeah. they, they, it's, it's all catered towards this one, like, oh, productivity or, you know, smooth caffeine benefit and this sort of thing. Like it's, right. it's completely alienated from its initial context. Um, I've never smoked hookah, so I don't know what that's like, but I can only imagine, you know, it's far more commercialized in the States than it is mm-hmm. abroad. Um, yeah, I, I think there's, there's certainly a lot of that. Um, and even, and to to my great dismay, that even happens on large cultural levels. And I think the the best example, um, not only because I think it actually is the best example of this happening in the States, but also because I have personal affinity to it, is Italian culture. Mm-hmm. Like Italian culture in the U.S. is a complete caricature. Yes. It, even by like the Italian Americans themselves, it, it is a complete caricature and it really breaks my heart because whoa, Italy whoa, whoa, is whoa, whoa, whoa. hold on now super mario <laughs> exactly exactly is that, that's what it's like over there right yes yes um <laughs> i i mean it really is like i i, I think there's actually reasons for it which yeah. we could get into if, if you'd like but um yes i i think it's i think it's just tough to to see stuff like that because then it gets kind of degraded and I guess what's most sad to me about it all is that people think they know when they don't know. And I, and I don't mean this in an elitist way, like, oh, I know, but you don't know. That's sure. not what I'm saying. I'm yeah, saying yeah. that the actual thing is very, very rich. And if you got to know it in its true context, you'd realize that it is a prime rib steak, but you're just eating a hamburger. You know? mm-hmm. so, so please, for your own sake, you know, experience it as it's meant to be experienced. Yes. Yeah. I think, um, that's a really great observation about the commercialization, objectification, and then the pro the productivity aspects of it, mm-hmm. as opposed to the sheer joy of simply enjoying drinking mate together. 
Like it doesn't have to have a larger purpose. It doesn't have to serve mm-hmm. your productive day. It doesn't have to enhance your social status. It just has yeah. to be a bunch of friends getting together and enjoying the rhythm of conversation centered around the sharing of this beverage. Like not every minute of every day has to be dedicated to productivity. And that is something that I think Americans really struggle with, not just on a cultural level, the way the culture moves us, you know, as, as this, our own cultural force moves us to behave in certain ways. I think we as Americans aren't just good in general at settling into just doing a thing for the sake of doing a thing. And I, I could speculate as to many reasons why that might be. Um, but the idea of just like, you no, know, you're going to put your phone down. There's no purpose to this. This is not, you know, whatever, whatever it is we're going to do right now isn't going to serve some larger productivity end goal. We're going to mm-hmm. do the thing just for the sake of doing it, right? We don't have to yeah. put it on Instagram, <laughs> right? And, that's, and yeah. I think that's something that Americans um, really struggle with. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a real affliction of the American soul that they don't actually have that. And maybe we don't even know. And that's the benefit of travel is you go to these other countries that aren't as, they don't take their productivity as seriously as Americans do for good, for good reasons, right? And not mm-hmm. always good reasons, but sometimes good reasons. And they have a better quality of life. So Americans go overseas and they're like, I want to live, like the whole world should be like this. And then they lose a <laughs> sense of context, right? Um, yep. and, and so I think, I think you've highlighted something really important um, that that's worth, that's worth exploring. Yeah. And I, I love what you added in the last point is that Americans lose the sense of context because everything has its pros and cons, you mm-hmm. know? And I think what, another thing that's pissed me off. So to also kind of put my timeline in context, I've spent more or less the majority of the past six years living abroad, specifically in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of the other travels were a little bit before that. Um, but even my just perspective of what Europe actually is and having lived in at least, yeah, four countries over here, um, it's, it's changed a lot. It's evolved a lot over those six years. But one thing I've noticed okay. is that when people come on vacation, you are seeing a specific, a very, very isolated part of that world, which is completely yes. foreign in many ways from actually living there. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and the same things like what you would hear about in the news or whatnot, it's just so distant from what the on the ground reality is. And so, you know, there are things that I love about America and there are things that I love about life in Southern Europe. Um, but each one certainly comes with its pros and cons. There yes. are not, you know, there's not a flat out, oh, this is better. Or the one thing I, I can't stand is when just Americans who like, you know, hear about, I don't know, they'll hear about one like social policy in Europe and they're like, we need to follow Europe's example. And I'm like, well, it's not like, the same. No, like it's, it's completely different, completely yeah. different um, context. You just can't replicate stuff the same way, nor would you necessarily even want to if you understood it. Um, so yeah, I think that's important. I don't really know where I'm going with that, but that's I'll okay. let you take it from there. No, I'll, <laughs> oh, I'm happy to drive this conversation about travel for the next five hours like this, because this is one of the, this is, Something that's so important, what because I've I've been to enough countries, particularly in Asia, like China, mm-hmm. like going to China and India, like China yep. and India, especially India, is the least is the country that is least like America that I've been to, right? I mean, it's 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 mm-hmm. you know, J- okay, Japan I, and go ahead, go ahead. Sorry, yeah, on, the, on the India note, I so I spent some time in India as well. Um, oh, here we go. The one, the one thing that I would say is that actually Indians as people, okay, 
culturally, I, I really, I really, really, really love them. And I was talking to, to a, a European friend of mine about this because he's an entrepreneur. Um, and I know, which is kind of crazy, uh, French, even at that, um, French anyways, entrepreneur, I, I know French entrepreneurs, um, <laughs> like, I really how don't do they get any work done days. with all the, with all the French stuff that yeah, French well, do that, well, that is not... well, he lives in New York for a reason. Now, oh, there so. you go. <laughs> it's like Italian entrepreneur. Like what? Exactly. Yeah. But, <laughs> but we were talking about like the, um, we were talking about kind of the ethic and in terms of kind of maybe work ethic or approach to doing things. And one thing that I love about India is that people will, will make the most out of almost any opportunity that's presented in front of them. Yeah, true. Um, so, so it's like they, I've just seen some of the most innovative stuff going on there, you know, because it's like they don't have access, they don't have access to resources in the same way that many of us would. Um, but with what they have, they're forced to innovate. They're forced to be creative and they are just like, I love what they, what they come up with. Um, I've just been, I just have my mind blown so many times by like, wow, I love the work ethic here. I love the creativity. I love the innovation. Um, whereas like a lot of people in continental Europe, for example, the, the streets are paved with gold, you know, financially and, and on a security basis and whatnot, but then they don't do anything with that. And so it's kind of like, I would, in that sense, I'd say, well, in some ways, actually, like, I kind of like maybe on a business level, let's say I could get along with an Indian better than I could, you know, a random Frenchman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and this gets a little bit into, and this is, this is great. And, 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 and I'd be happy to continue this line of conversation because it's very rare that I get to have it, is that every country has its light side and its shadow side, its light side mm-hmm. and its dark side, right? So, um, so let's talk about uh, let's talk about let's just go with uh, the United States. Oh no, what I was going to say is Argentina or Italy okay. or wherever, right? Okay. So when I travel, this this is when I realized this existed. It was when in Argentina, there's something in many overseas countries, not all, but many, called the tourist bubble. And the mm-hmm. tourist bubble is a bubble that, um, it, like when you said people going to Italy, like people who come in vacation in Italy, the Italy that they see is just a small slice of the larger overall country. Yep. Excuse me. So that's the tourist bubble. And the tourist bubble exists for two reasons. The first reason is to tightly control what the tourist experience of whatever country is. Mm-hmm. So it's like, it's, it's, a, it's like a marketing thing. It's like theater is a component of theater. The tourism industry is designed to carefully curate <clears throat> excuse me, your experience as a visitor so that you walk away having a good time with a good impression of the country. Makes sense, right? Like we as people have personas. Why wouldn't a nation have a persona, right? Okay. So the tourist bubble serves that positive function. It also serves a, 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 another function of protecting people from the realities of the countries that they're visiting. So for example, if you were to go to um, go to Mexico, right? Or you go, you go to a place like a, a five-star resort and Mexico is a good example. You're within the walls of the five-star resort and you're, you're experiencing a particular side of Mexico. But if you were to go to the other side of the walls, you would see a very different country. Now, whatever level of peace or prosperity is actually going on there, which it varies, you as a, as a Western visitor, like you were in, if you were to go there, you would be going backstage. So it actually protects the people of the country from the Western visitor eyes who can't see, who can't understand what they're looking at. So right. in Argentina, right, I went from, um, I went from Buenos Aires to Bariloche, right? And then I went down to, um, 
Taurus Delpina and then went down to Ushuaia. Like I followed the very, uh, the very, uh, and, uh, Fitzroy. I went to, I followed the very, the very worn tourist trail throughout Argentina and did not experience a lot of the rest of the country like I did mm. elsewhere. And so I got to see the good side of Argentina. I didn't get to see the shadow side of Argentina. Right. Okay. But then in India or China, it's all mashed together. There is no tourist trail in these countries. You are subjected to the light and the shadow side of all the kinds, just right there in your face. And it can, it can mm. be a lot for people. And in that, I learned that every country has a, has a light side and a dark side. So India, now we'll come back to India. India has this, uh, this, this ethic that you're describing, like make it work. It's called Jugad, right? Make it work. Whatever, it is, it, whatever resources you have, make it work. And as wonderful as that is, the shadow side of that is that, eh, good enough is good enough. And so that's the experience of India. Like, yeah, we made the building. The building is standing. Cool. We did, did what we had to make it, but we don't actually have to make it beautiful or efficient, yeah. right? Or, or, or safe, right? And, mm-hmm. and so as you're talking, as you're talking about uh, India, as you're talking about Italy, as we're talking about America, like there's so much good about America. And what usually happens is that people go travel and then they're subjected to the shadow of America and they completely lose sight of what's amazing about this country. And so that's, the, that's, that's kind of the thing that I, I, I hear you articulating in a way. It's like when you live in a place like Italy for a long time, you see all the things that are really good about it or France or Argentina. And I'm sure you see the things that are less good. And it's not about trying to make one country into the image of another. It's about appreciating the light and dark of a country like a person. It's kind of how I think about it. Yeah. And I think more than anything, that's what um, I've been really fortunate with in my travels is that I've, and everywhere I've been, I've been able to see both sides. Yeah. Um, I've never been subjected to the tourist bubble, mainly because I've just spent, I've either spent time in a very like, um, I I hate to say this, authentic fashion. I'll I'll give an example of what I mean by that. Um, And the other times are, and if not that, then it's just, I've spent enough time there. So, for example, I, I went to um, Cuba. I spent some time in Cuba as well. Mm. But we spent literally like my connection was I knew a cleaning lady whose brother was a pastor in Cuba. And so a buddy and I went down and we said, hey, we're going to spend a couple weeks here. But like we didn't stay at all. We, we lived on a Cuban budget and we stayed mm. in a suburb of um, Havana, which was essentially like a room, you know, the, the lady who, um, we would, we would stay with kind of this, uh, the woman I knew in the States, her mother, I mean, her house was a concrete, you know, I don't, uh, seven foot by seven foot square. And then like one small little side room for a bathroom and kitchen. Yep. And that, that was it, yep. you know, and like dirt roads. I mean, you, you would think honestly that you were in the middle of Africa. Yep. Um, it was, it was really crazy. So like seeing that, and I hear people be like, Cuba's amazing. And I'm yeah. like, what are you talking about? Yeah. I was 20 minutes by foot outside of the center. And it's like, no, not that. Yeah. Um, and then in Morocco That's the too. That's the tourist bubble. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then Morocco too, this is actually, you'll appreciate this story. Um, when I was in France, I made friends with a bunch of Moroccans. Um, and one of them, we were, we were walking through the city one day and it was kind of in my earlier stages of, of being in this particular city. And so we're like, where's the train station? He said, oh, it's that way. I said, no, you're crazy. It can't be that way at all. 
And, um, and he said, yeah, like he was super confident. I was super confident. And I said, all right, you know, let's, let's put money on it. Like a whole round of drinks for, for you and your friends, whoever, whoever loses essentially. Um, and so (laughs) anyways, I lost the bet. Um, so there I was taking him and and his buddies out to drink, you know, the next weekend, um, a bunch like there. Yeah. Yeah. So double digits. So anyways, um, we were there, we were having a great time, like having a really fun time. And anyways, at one point he's like, you've got to come back to Morocco with me. And I was like, all right, dude, like whatever, you know, kind of having fun. Um, and then I text him the next day and I, I, maybe he texted me or I texted him. I don't, I don't really know how it happened, but basically like, all right, now that you're sober offer still stand. And, um, it's like, yeah. So anyways, like flew down with him, you know, a month later, um, he, he from a small town, 30 minutes, uh, no 30 kilometers east of Casablanca and okay. got to like meet his family, spend time there. And then he had a brother in Marrakesh and another in Rabat. And so, mm-hmm. you know, getting to like go through there and kind of seeing all, you know, the good and the bad and take them public transport and like all this stuff. It, it was excellent. It was wonderful. Um, but yeah, I've never like no country I've been to, I've ever walked away being like, this is the best ever. Um, because, because I know that I know that it's not like you, if you spend enough time there, I'll, if I'm being honest with myself, I think my first time in Europe, like after I got back from maybe my first trip in Europe, I, I was kind of of that perspective, like, Oh, this is so cool. You know, <laughs> Happens but then like, Americans. you, you spend, yeah, you spend one year, actually one year more actually like living there and you start to realize, Oh, uh, actually no, you know, for many reasons. And, and then, you know, you stay there during a global pandemic and then, you know, during right now, like a economic crisis and a war on the continent, like yeah. it's just totally different scenario. Yes, we 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 as Americans, it's it, it's very difficult to appreciate the truth behind some of the propaganda that we hear growing right. up, right? Like, and and what I've come to say after travel is like, look, not every country in the world needs to be like America. Mm-hmm. But the world needs a country like America, right? Yeah. And to be born in the United States, to have U.S. citizenship, is a profound gift and blessing. It's incredible. And the only Absolutely. way that you can really appreciate that is by doing what you did, which is even going to a country in Europe. Because what a lot of kids do is they'll go, they'll do, it's like some sort of gap year thing, or in the early 20s, they'll travel through Europe, right? And then they'll, and then they'll, uh, like, oh, this is amazing. There's the sidewalk cafes and, you know, the attitudes are so liberal and there's all this healthcare and, and they get really enamored of this model, this European model, again, with a lack of context. And they inevitably, yeah. they inevitably become super, super politically liberal as a result. We should be yeah. more like Europe. Okay. So what happened to me, like, I, I don't, I didn't, I didn't go in with any expectations. I traveled the rest of the world and I became super conservative. Because I started, it's, yeah, go ahead. No, no, I, I mean, it, the exact, the exact same thing. Yeah. Like I, I went out and maybe the first time, you know, when you're first exposed and you've seen just a fraction of it, you start to go kind of more like, like, oh, like America, whatever. Um, <laughs> I love that voice. But then, but then like literally the more time I spend abroad, the more time I'm like, I love America. My gosh. Yeah. I mean, especially when I got back from COVID and people talk about Which American freedom. 
sorry, sorry. When I when I got back from France, um, <laughs> yes, <laughs> le COVID. Um, yeah. Anyways, when I got back from France as like refugee from you know dealing with COVID over there, um, people talk about oh American freedom. Like we talk about it, and everywhere is free. Like no, no, like. I got to go outside and meet people and walk around and like, you know, it was amazing. And I came to respect that a, a heck of a lot, you know, and even doing business here. Cause I'm, I'm someone who's relatively entrepreneurial and just Re- seeing relatively how meaning very- easy, yeah. Like how easy it is to do business in the U S is remarkable. Yeah. And, and now people will, will say like, Oh, well, America, it, it cares too much about business, but actually I, I think I've really come to, to firmly believe this is that business, what it does more than anything is it drives innovation. You have to allow for entrepreneurship to drive innovation and innovation is what ultimately makes, it, it brings more opportunities to people um, and, and it ameliorates bad living conditions. Um, so I look at a lot of like what I see in Europe, for example, where it's so, Western Europe in particular, where it's so hard to do business and like, there are tons of people I know who they have job security, but they have the, they can't leave their job because they will not find another one mm-hmm. yeah. in the French. Okay. Let me give you a insane example. This is true. So France is one of the most difficult countries to start a business in. Mm-hmm. It's generally but, true of Europe. Yep. Yeah, but, but France in particular, one of the, one of the hardest countries to start a business in, but they have one of the highest startup rates in all of Europe. So. Okay. Riddle me this. The reason that is, is because, precisely because of the fact that they've made it so difficult for their own citizens to start businesses, they now subsidize foreign countries coming into the country, coming into France, sorry, foreign country, foreign businesses coming into France to, to have, raise their businesses there and hire French employees. So let me, let me make sure I understand. They hire foreign nationals to come into France so that, so Citizens they they of don't other hire countries. the foreign nationals. The, the French government subsidizes foreign companies to make it easier for them to come into France as startups, thus hiring the, the French people. Why don't they just change? The, I mean, I know why, but why don't they change the, the laws so that French people can start their own businesses? Exactly. 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 But exactly. like, that's actually C'est how backwards. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Like, it's actually... It, it is literally that ridiculous. Yeah. That, that's what people, people don't get. And it's just, it's remarkable to me. Like, why would you not? Because essentially you're taking the wealth out of your country because that, that's the taxpayers, you know, money that's going to subsidize foreign entities to, to, you know, then give them employment, which is never going to be the same thing. Like you are going to take care of your house better than anyone else's. So instead of empowering their own populace, to create those jobs and then give employment to others, you know, their compatriots, they're instead doing it with, with foreign um, enterprises coming in who, who don't care about the French people nearly as much. So it's mm-hmm. just, it's ridiculous. And for, for that reason, sorry, I know I'm getting no, very okay. impassioned about this, no, but get, um, I've for, never gotten impassioned that, about anything. <laughs> yeah. Like for that reason, I, um, I fully believe in the power of, of actually, you know, liberalizing a market. By that, I mean freeing it up uh, to make it easier to do business because it allows for innovation, allows people to switch jobs. It allows you know, there to be competition, which you know, forces people to get better. Like it just, It's so different. Um, 
And especially too, kind of last thing I'll say is working with refugees mm. in these different environments. I know for a fact, for a fact, they have the best chances of succeeding and succeeding for their future generations in America, hands down. Mm-hmm. They, they have a, the refugees have a better chance of succeeding in America than they do anywhere else is what you're saying. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Forget all the generous, you know, subsidies and welfare that French ha- that France has, um, that the UK has, like in America without a doubt. I mean, I, I've seen it firsthand. I know people who, who have come to the US within a generation, gone on to become business owners, their children gone on to be medical professionals, yeah. you know, within one generation. It's, yeah. it's remarkable. And it's partially because of just, you know, how we do things. And look, I know America too. Like, I, I mean, I grew up there, so I know that we have things that are to be improved upon mm-hmm. without a doubt, but we're certainly not um, the backwards, the backwater country of the Western world as some people might cast it. No, we're absolutely not. And it, what's so funny is I, when I was getting ready to go to India, well, I lived in San Francisco for many years and for a while I had an Indian roommate who was from uh, mm-hmm. Goa, right? He was from that, that, that re- Goa, Mumbai, he was from that region. And um, had had immigrated with his family when he was young, um, uh, engineer, coder, and all that stuff. And so he and I were friends. And so when I finally bought my ticket to go to India, I um, I messaged him like, "Hey, his name is McNeil." I said, "Hey, McNeil, I'm, I'm really excited to go to India." And he messaged messaged me back. He said, "Why?" <laughs> and I was like, "What?" Like I've been looking forward to going to India for a really long time, not because I had any projections of it, but because I knew that there was something there for me, not because like, oh, it's going to be this amazing spiritual experience. No, I wasn't looking for any of that, but I was looking, I was looking for something else that I'll have to struggle to articulate later. But he said, why? And that really stuck with me. And it wasn't until I spent two or three or four months there that I understood what he meant. Hmm. Why, why he would ever wonder from my perspective, why I'd be interested to go to India because so many people are from not just India, but from these other countries where corrupt the weight of corruption, the weight of culture, the weight of re- the weight of religion, the stultifying weight of religion, family tradition weighs on people around the world. Like in the sense of we yeah. do these things because this is how we do these things, and it's enforced on people to keep them these these little kind of boxes. And and but we in America take for granted that the that individualism is the highest value. There, like no one has any claim over what we do as individuals in America. It's just in our blood somehow that if you mm-hmm. decide that you want to, I mean, it's taken a bit too far now, but if you grew <laughs> up in a small town, let's say you grew up in a small town anywhere, Oklahoma, what, right? And you'd, and your father runs a farm, pick it, doesn't matter the business. And you decide that rather than taking on the inheritance of five generations of your family farm and whatever the traditions of your town are, and your family name, all that stuff. If you say, I'm going to go to the big city to be an author or whatever, that tradition, family has no claim over you. And we just know that in America. It's like, we just know that the father would be like, okay, that, that's hard for me to hear, but I support you, go do that, right? Versus mm-hmm. in other countries around the world, India, Europe, whatever. If you were to grow up in a small town with this family business and all that stuff, and you say, I'm going to the big city, the full weight of tradition, culture lands on you, family, especially family. Like you can't leave the family. Like where are you going? In many ways that, that sentence, I'm going to the big city would be akin to saying you're dead to me. Yes, exactly right. In in America, it's like, good luck on your big adventure hero, right? Even though it may hurt the father or the family and they may not want that, 
they still acknowledge unconsciously the value of that individual journey. They may be upset, they may push back, they may argue, but very rarely will they say what you just said, which is like, you're dead to me, don't ever talk to me again. But in other countries around the world, you are abandoning your family, and very much so. And that, the way that that holds the country together is very powerful, and the way that it holds these countries back is also very powerful. And it's only by spending a lot of time in these countries overseas that you can really get that. Because otherwise, you'll yeah. look at it and you, it'll be invisible. You won't be able to see it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I, I loved hearing that because I think it's wonderfully accurate. And just to add to it a small thing is that even when we do go abroad, we often, uh, to go abroad, not so much for even tourism, but to even live. You know, like me in Italy right now, I have the leisure of working with Americans. You know, and, and working like with an American company oh, and man. earning in U.S. dollars, you know that that oh. makes my experience in Italy far different, even still, than the average Italians. Yeah, um, and so I'm very, very fortunate for that. Um, in, in incredibly, incredibly grateful for what the the simple fact of being born in America, where I was born, offers me. Yeah, yeah, and and, and I think we don't. It's very difficult for Americans to appreciate that. Because it's very difficult for Americans to to have, discover, or even take the opportunity to go live abroad in a mm-hmm. completely foreign culture. Like I think the opportunities are there, um, but I mean, like missionary trips are a good example for churches. You know, study abroad in, in college and stuff like that. But you know, for some people, the the notion of doing it, whether if if it even comes their way, is, is terrifying, right? They're just scared yeah. of the other. Right. And so, and so I don't think I'm not the kind of person who thinks that, you know, everyone in the world should travel the way I or you did. I don't, I don't believe that. I don't think everyone's suited for it. Some people never leave their town. They never leave their city. Right. I, I may be totally okay with walking through the mountains of Nepal for a couple of weeks. You know, I may be okay wandering around India alone for six months. Like who thought that was a good idea? <laughs> right. But that's not everybody. But I think it's the responsibility of people like you and me and, and other travelers to not only pierce the veil of these other countries and see them for what they are, but then come back and tell the honest truth about it, yeah. not so that we can make other countries look bad or so that we can make America look good, right? Not with an agenda, but just so we can get an honest picture of the world because I don't think we get it through the TV. Exactly. And, and you don't even get it through... Unfortunately, you know, what's, what's partially bad is you don't even get it through, you know, a six month study abroad. That's oftentimes where you're seeing like the really nice stuff. Um, you have to spend more time there or have a, you know, get out of the tourist bubble, as you said, but I, I certainly do think it is a responsibility to report back on the good and bad because there certainly is that. Um, and again, I, I really appreciate so many assets or facets of American life, I should say. Um, there are other things that I know that, you know, I, I certainly don't appreciate and I, yeah. I kind of prefer more how they do things here, but at least I can see it with sober eyes, I suppose, instead of being deluded about, oh, one is, one is paradisal because neither is. It's simply right. not true. Yeah. It depends. It depends on what your values are and you learn to make trade-offs, right? Yep. Like I, mm-hmm. I can't, even if, even a lot of, a lot of people in California, let's talk pre COVID because COVID changed a lot of things around the world. And we don't have to talk about that. We suppose we can, but, um, a lot of people in California were like, 
I really want to go live in New Zealand. Like that was like, that was the, we're going to escape to New Zealand in case the world ends was the, was the common thing in California. <laughs> I actually got to live in New Zealand for um, on and off for a couple of years. And there's a, ro- a lot of really great things about New Zealand. You know, the lifestyle down there is really great, but there are a lot of things as an American that are very difficult in a place like New Zealand. You can't find a country that looks more like America. Like yeah. it's, I mean, if, if I just snap my fingers and bang, you're in New Zealand, you wouldn't actually know that you're in New Zealand, except for the cars driving on the side of the road. As an American, again, it's the same question about entrepreneurship and, you know, being driven and motivated and upfront and outspoken that just doesn't mesh well, you know, with the Kiwi culture. It's not an insult to Kiwi culture. It's very laid back. They live on paradisal tropical islands, you know, that are like tropical on the coast and like England on the interior. It's like, it's, it's, it's a <laughs> wonderful place, but you have to really learn to like, okay, I'm going to accept a lower pace of life and all the diminished possibilities that that includes because I want to live at that pace and stay there. And that's a trade-off exactly. because if you're, if you're entrepreneurial, highly motivated, driven, you want to be in a place like America. And your trade-off will be productization, commercialization, you know, productivity and all that. And so you have to learn to make those trade-offs as a person. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about um, you being in, in Italy now. Like, um, and, and what's taking you there and where you are in Italy and, 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 and all of that. Yes. So predominantly what's taken me here is my lovely wife. Mm. Um, she is originally from Sicily, but we live now in the North of Italy. So about an hour or so Northeast of Milan and still Lombardy. So Lombardy to me, isn't, uh, isn't, you know, incredibly remarkable, um, I, I appreciate it. Um, but, but all that being said, um, we live in a really nice little pocket, almost a, a little refuge from the city. The main city that we're at, we live about 10, 10, 15 minutes by bus Southeast of it. And we live almost adjacent to an airport where we're not in the flight path, which is nice. Mm. But if you just walk 10 minutes down the road, then you go into this very open area and it's really cool. We, we took a walk. I mean, this was almost magical the other day. We took a walk, um, right about the time the sun was, you know, slowly setting. Um, it's very different too, cause, cause we're at a high, a far higher latitude, I suppose here in, in Europe, you know, I mean more North in Canada, if you look yeah. at it, just, um, X's and X's on a map, but it's not tropical. No, no. Mediterranean, so, so, Mediterranean, that's the word. Yeah, so the, the sun was setting beautifully and we were just there and we could look over this giant field of grass and then you see the, the mountains in the distance uh, just rising up. You see the church towers like in front of the mountains. To the right of us, there are some horses playing around and we got to feed some of them. And then we're walking back and this family of cats, this was bizarre, Will. It was like these cats came up to us and they're the most dog-like cats I've ever seen. That one came up and started, you know, rubbing on us and then like two more. And then they, they all just like came out of the, the woodwork and they're, you know, hanging out with us. And, and then we keep on walking and the moon, cause it was a full moon earlier this week and the moon's coming up. It's almost like eye level, just giant ac- across the sky, you know, and right next to the mountains. And then. Uh, we cross back over and then we see a couple donkeys and we go and say hi to them. Like it, it was really, really idyllic, um, honestly. And so I, I guess what I'm, I'm fortunate about here is that 
we live in a place where we have access to, you know, the, the, the benefits of a, being in a city. Um, but also just for leisure purposes, we can walk 10 minutes and go clear our mind. You know, I'll, I'll go and, and if I need to take a break in the afternoon or just want some time to myself to kind of meditate, go light a pipe, you know, stroll down this road, check out some of the horses, something like that. Um, so that's really nice. And then obviously being an hour or so from Milan, you know, Milan is essentially the hub that connects the rest of the country. So from there, can take a train to Rome, can take a train to Venice, really wherever you want. So that's very nice just being located that way. Mm-hmm. Are you, and, and you were mentioning something a, a little bit about the American Italian culture versus Italian Italian culture versus tourist Italian culture. Like, let's talk about that because I've only been to the Amalfi Coast in Italy, which is like a very small sliver of a very yeah. small sliver of Italy. All right. Well, um, I don't want to, I don't want to offend too many people. So I'll simply say that Italians, <laughs> well, the, the Italian Americans more so. Um, <laughs> so technically this is interesting because like my mom's family is technically Italian American. Um, and so my great grandfather, I mean, he came over like on the boat and was essentially raised as like an orphan, um, by the Irish policeman, strangely enough in, in Boston at the time. Sounds like so, a movie. Yeah, no, I mean, like, really, he lived, he even he even got drunk in a bar one night, got signed up for the military, and then, like, shipped out west to go hunt down Pancho Villa. I mean, it was really, like, crazy That's awesome. stuff. So, yeah, um, actually kind of movie-like. But anyways, we never had, like, anything super Italian-related in my family. Like, not at all. Um, and so I just kind of grew up completely neutral, you know, almost no connection other than just understanding my family's lineage. Um, but what I see a lot of the Italian Americans, and unfortunately, I, I just, and look, I'm not like judging anyone because of their, their bloodline here. It's not like the Italian Americans are, are bad. Mm-hmm. Um, but just what I've, I've seen so much of what is that are. like, <laughs> just uh, unfortunately what I've seen a lot of um, is that they they're very proud of of being you know Italian American and having that kind of Italian heritage, but it's almost become just a complete like caricature or something that you kind of do to to show off, you know, or or you'll you want to like feel unique by calling your grandmother you know La Donna and and mm-hmm. just talking like that, but in reality like completely detached from what anything real in Italy is like. Um, and that, I mean, part of that, like, let's be honest, it's not, it's not their fault. Part of it's because, all right, well, when their grandparents came over, um, th- they obviously, like, they came from a very specific part of Italy, and Italy's changed a lot since then. Um, there have been, you know, migration patterns in Italy itself, and so I can understand some of that. But yeah, I guess it's it's almost kind of like I, I just I just know certain individuals, and perhaps they've rubbed me the wrong way, where it's the pretense of it. You know, like the, the pretentiousness oh, yeah. of, of feeling that way when in reality, like you have no connection. Like I have several other friends who, you know, have, have fairly strong too, like lineages that are German or Polish, but they don't, you know, they're not walking around like, oh, this and that and this and that, the other, da, 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 Italian. <laughs> like when in reality, like they're completely detached. I guess they're just more honest about it. They're more like, yeah, I mean, here's like this thing that we do. And it kind of comes from this tradition, but I'm not going to make you think that I'm like the most Italian thing in right. the world um, when they can't even speak the language, you know, like, come on. It's just, 
it's such a, um, if I can say this word, I mean, it really is, unfortunately, it's become a bastardization of a real culture. Mm-hmm. And, and that's unfortunate, but I feel like someone's got to say it. So um, it's, a, it's an affectation. It's not, it's not an authentic representation. It's an affectation. Right? Ab- absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think part of the reason too, in terms of the bigot, going back to what I said earlier of why um, Italian culture is so caricatured. Mm. So obviously we were just talking about the subculture, which is kind of Italian Americans. Um, but actually more so than that, I think it's because Italy as itself, as a, as a concept, really is a modern invention. So you'll see this most practically in the sense that Italy before 1860 was not, you know, before the mid 1800s was not a country. It was a landmass. Italia was the Italian peninsula. Mm. It was not a, a nation. It had no, um, it had no pretensions to being a nation, no claim to that. Didn't even want to be. Italy itself is insanely fragmented. The different mm-hmm. cultures that make it up, they're so, so, so diverse. I mean, literally like hundreds of, of different you know, ways of quote unquote being Italian. And so the Italians to this day, I mean, the, the regional differences are immense. And, and for that reason, um, I think foreigners cannot help but caricature Italy because because there's no way of, of possibly actually tying together the complete diversity of what it is That's a great and the point. different nuances and, uh, again, true like cultural diversity that is here. They, they can only, they, the only way that they can possibly try to tie it together in their mind is to create something that's homogen, um, homogenous and a caricature of the real mm-hmm. thing. It's so, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's, it's all reduced down to literally the lowest common denominator, right? Mm-hmm. As opposed to, because you're right. Like I haven't even, I, I know that you're right, even though I haven't seen that much of Italy. Like Florence is very different from Rome, is very different from Milan, is very different from Venice, is very different from Amalfi. And so it's all these different regions. And, and the reason why I know this is in researching the, Renaissance, the Italian Renaissance for the Renaissance of men, understanding mm-hmm. where the Italian Renaissance came from, how it was all these different city-states kind of in competition with each other, and they didn't like each other. Like they weren't fans yeah. of each other, you know, and, Not and, at all. Not and, all. and so now that all those same Italian city states are now part of one nation, like forget it, right? And so, yeah. yes, it makes sense that what are you going to take out of that as a national character? Well, there isn't one, but mm-hmm. they, but except for this, this low, lowest common denominator caricature of that. Yeah. I, I really think it's, it's rather remarkable, especially to, to look back Italian unification. I almost, I'm, to be honest, I'm rather sad that it happened Italian in the first place. Unification but was a mistake. It was, it was. <laughs> um, but it's really, it's really sad though to see like other places got away with it. You know, France got away with it. Um, Spain somehow cobbled together something coherent. You know, uh, Germany eventually unified. Um, but but Italy, it it just feels the most forced. It really, really, truly feels That's the most forced. And to see it on the ground and kind of the repercussions of it. I mean, think of it. It's only, you know, 160 years in the making. Mm-hmm. And, and think of the technology we have now, but even think of what life was like in the 90s. 
I mean, without the digital communication that we have now, these regional differences were even bigger. I mean, they persisted for a really, really, really long time. Yeah. And so I think it's just, uh, again, Italy is, is so, so different. Um, every different aspect of it, you know, I'm, I'm even talking about quote unquote Italy, but I can only speak to the parts of Italy that I know. I know that there are still so many other Italy's that I haven't even gotten to experience or encounter in their full extent. Right. And you, you touched on something interesting, which is that, um, you know, as Americans, we have our unique founding mythologies, you know, mm-hmm. the, the revolutionary war, right. Uh, the civil war kind of also, and then I think the American, the current American national identity is, is formed out of post-World War II. We're kind of still in that phase, right? So we have these founding mythologies. And, but other nations have theirs as well. And when I was living in New Zealand, like New Zealand and Australia didn't really start thinking of themselves as countries until after World War I because mm-hmm. of like the Gallipoli massacres. Like that was, for whatever reason, those, those, that moment was when Italy and New Zealand started thinking themselves thinking of themselves as countries and not some big triumph. It was like our soldiers mm-hmm. went overseas and, and got massacred in these battles. And that's kind of when the national identity of New Zealand, at least, and Australia too, kind of crystallized. And so Italy has its own founding mythology, which is unification, which I, I actually didn't know anything about, but it makes me kind of think that you know, maybe Mussolini had something to do with this too, of like, how are you... Ooh. Yeah. So, sorry, just uh, on Mussolini. Actually, the um, the it had it not been for Mussolini, I don't know if Italy would be together in one piece today. Like Amazing. honestly, his his form of politics consolidated a, a lot of the Italian state. I think he personally preserved it. Um, mm-hmm. This is not you know an apology for Benito yeah, Mussolini. Exactly. Like, um, <laughs> yeah. but if you look at what he did, I mean the way that he strengthened um, the state itself and really brought it together. I, I honestly do not think that if, if that period in history had not transpired in Italy, that it would still be a country today. It's just, again, because it's this hodgepodge of regions that are very, very loosely tied together. It's miraculous that they even came together in the first place. If you read about um, um, the Italian unification, I mean, the history of it's so complex and so bizarre. That's why there aren't many like books on it. You know, a great French history is easy enough in the sense that you can actually follow a coherent A and B. Mm-hmm. But Italy has just been split by everyone, every ruling power at some point in the world. You know, I mean, like, let's just give a, a brief rundown. The Greeks, the Carthaginians, the Romans, the Austrians, the French, the, the Bourbons, the Papal States, like all of these, the Spanish, you know, everyone has had claim in Italy at some point. And it's it, the, the unification, I mean, the kind of the straws that they tie together to try to make this national myth, it, it's again, very weak. I think it's one of the weaker ones in Europe for sure. Um, and so they kind of, they create their own heroes and try to hold them up. And even after World War II, there's definitely, um, they, they they created kind of more of their myth mythos, if you will, mm-hmm. their founding mythology, because you have the people who were you know against uh, fascism and who you know um, who actually like brought Italy together and kind of out of this thing, um, which in itself too is a complete like 
<laughs> this is this is really funny because of of how like Italy switched sides in the war. Um, it, it's a complete you know propagandic myth in the sense that almost overnight everyone in Italy went from being fascist to suddenly no one was, and so <laughs> you know it was it was very like Who me, arbitrary no. and yeah it was uh it, it's interesting but anyways all that to say like I, I don't know where I'm really going with this but okay. um you know, to go back to the point from earlier, it's just so, so, so incredibly diverse to, I mean, all of Europe is in ways that Americans don't really realize just the reasonable differences in every country, every single country has them. But I think Italy out of any nation I've been in certainly has the most that I've ever seen. Yeah. And I think from an American perspective, it can be very difficult to appreciate that as, as rich and as important and as complicated as our founding mythology and history is, because there's there's the the actual history, which the threads are too many to even number, and then the mythology is is the the grand narrative that's spun out of the, the of history. So there's the mythology and the history. Every country has one of those, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And it's it's so incredibly complicated, and it's almost impossible to comprehend unless you're even from there. Like you have to grow up yeah. marinating in it and having it bake into your soul. Like if like Japan or Korea or China or whatever, pick a, pick a country, doesn't matter. They all have mm-hmm. their own founding history and they all have their own founding mythology. And it's as important to them as it is to us. And it's probably as unintelligible to, to us as theirs, as ours would be to them. You know, yeah. it's, it's like trying to understand a person. Like you can't ever understand all the things that make a person a person. You could sit and yeah. talk for hours and never understand all the individual, individual points, but there's still a person in front of you and it's your responsibility to get to know them as best you can. Absolutely. Yeah, I think, again, nothing to add. You've uh, yeah. said it perfectly. <laughs> so, um, so I guess you're here, you're over there, you're, you're in Italy, and you're living, in, you're living overseas in Europe, you know, in France and, as well. And, um, and as you're there, you're marinating in all, in, all, in all of this really formative culture that forms the backdrop of the United States founding mythology and history, even if it's not a huge part of it. How did you get inspired or when did you get inspired or what inspired Rewire the West? Because I can imagine where you are. It's like, gosh, I got Maybe I got to start talking about this stuff or you're being inspired by it. Or it's part of your background. Like, where did that come from? It's a great question. Thanks for that. I think with Rewire the West, the, the mission of it is to help other people rediscover beauty, truth, and virtue. Hmm. And specifically in, you know, Western culture. Um, and the reason I, I do that is not from any sort of superiority complex of like the West is the best. Um, it's not that, but what it is, is saying like, I, I understand the power of culture and having roots. You know, one thing I, I love about the French and by the way, I don't know if I've told you this. Um, I go back and forth, kind of depends what day you ask me, whether France is, the best country in the world or the worst one? It really kind of depends on, on which day and, you know, my mood when you ask me that question. But oh, man. it's a question I, I, I flip back and forth between. Um, but one thing I love at the very least or just have uh, an immense respect for is the, the French people and the connection to their culture and history, um, regardless of whether they, they know it or not many mm-hmm. times. Um, and so I, I've come to realize it, I suppose, perhaps travel has, has shown me this. It was like, 
really, you know, America is born out of the old world. And regardless of what we want, regardless of if we like that, if we don't, like it is a fact, okay? Yeah. And I, I also believe that actually connecting with your culture, um, the, the roots and legacy of your culture is what will ultimately make you most grounded in the sense of, you know, a, a, a tree has deep roots and if you cut yourself from, off from those, you are doomed to die. Um, I think we have to understand where we came from. And so anyways, I'm, I'm kind of being around the bush here, perhaps. Um, more specifically in the realm of beauty, truth, and virtue, I look back to the great, Im- immensely great and beautiful contributions of Western culture. We were in a, a spot where for hundreds of years, um, so much beauty, so much creativeness, inventiveness, you know, really just magical stuff has, has arisen from this culture. And I feel like today, this is tying back into the roots thing. I feel like today, unfortunately, specifically in America, we are so often cut off from that. It's, it's really sad. So, so what I want to do is I want to help people reconnect with that. And how that happened in my own life is that I, I have personally found a basis, you know, in, in connecting to the land of quote unquote, my forefathers, you know, connecting to their art, to their ideas, to their narratives in the world that they walked in. I have found that immensely grounding in my own life. It's given me something to, um, in which to base myself, um, in which to base to, to find a framing for the way that I view the world. Um, one that allows me to be critical, actually, to, to not just kind of, you know, accept blindly whatever this culture has presented, but, you know, the classical liberal tradition that rose out of Europe. And, and by this, I mean liberal and it's true etymological sense, which yeah. is liberating. You know, the yeah. liberal arts were created to free man, to yeah. free man's mind. To, to allow man to, to engage with the world, to create in the image of his creator, to, um, to just experience and, and think critically and actually understand and grasp truth and its implications. Yeah. That is what I'm about. And that's, that's what I've found to benefit me immensely. It's what I found that these works of Western culture have benefited me immensely. And so Simply rewire the West is almost, to put it in the most um, simplistic way, it's me sharing that passion with others and hoping that it inspires them to also engage with these works that I do believe can be life-changing. Mm, that's beautiful. Well said. Well said. And, and you, you, again, you're saying so many really important things. Among them is that America is born out of the old world. Like we, we want, I, I think there's some collective drive to I don't know, forget that, ignore that. But when we do, you know, we're talking about shadow, like light and dark sides of a country. Like I think the, the dark side, the shadow side of America comes out when we forget that, when we forget mm-hmm. our, own, our own lineage. Now, that doesn't mean that we need to bow down before our lineage and do like a form of ancestor worship, right? But I think to understand the intellectual, um, artistic, cultural, and even spiritual traditions of Europe, and how they informed the American project, I think can bring us back 
to some notion of self that isn't completely corporatized, that isn't completely um, productivity driven, and that brings some soul back into America without having to turn us into Europe. Yeah. Yes. And to add to that as well, I'll say that a, a big thing that got me started on you know, looking to the beauty that came out of Western culture was simply because of its longevity. Mm. It has stayed around for so long, and, and it does so for a reason. It's not arbitrary. These works have stood the test of time for a reason because they allow us to stand the test of time yeah. because they resonate with deep human truths. And so what we have, the art that we can look to from the old world, it's been mulling in these things that are, it's comp- contemplating the human condition far longer than America's roots, you know, as a, as a nation ha- has ever done. Yeah. And so it's like, why, why bother, for example, engaging with this contemporary uh, culture that's trying to figure things out? It's almost trying to build things from scratch. When I can go to things that are thousands of years old, hundreds of years old, uh, a couple centuries old, that they have, I, I know that they're time proven and I know that they're going to resonate with me. And I know that they're going to do so because they've done so for millions of people before me. Mm-hmm. It's like, I just got so tired, I guess, of almost wasting my time with contemporary media, entertainment, culture, what have you, that I, I just said, you know, I want to embrace things that are good, that are, that are good for me and that I don't have to worry about, like, is this going to be garbage or whatnot? And the, the work that that's done on my soul has been immense. So let's, so let's talk about Western culture. Like when do you, let's talk about some of the earliest roots of Western culture. Cause this word, this term gets thrown around a lot. And, mm-hmm. and I think in something gets lost in the fog. Like, what is Western culture? Like, I know it's an enormous question, so you don't need to do a dissertation. Like, we both could. But like, like where do you see Western culture beginning as sort of breaking off from the cultures that preceded it? Like, just, just a rough date, you know, in some significant moment. So at least we can have a basis of understanding this is the foundation of, of it. And then we can move forward from there. Yeah. Um, well, I, I'd put a couple breaks. Obviously, if you want to go down to classical antiquity, Mm-hmm. And I think that's where you get into the Greco-Roman world. But what is immensely important to note is that Christendom changed all of that. Mm-hmm. That the Greco-Roman world provided the philosophical foundations, the intellectual foundations for which we understand the world. But in terms of the ethical and moral outlook, Christianity changed all of that. So I, I you know, if you want to trace the roots back to almost phase one being Greco-Roman classical antiquity. And then I would actually point to the Middle Ages. Um, but, but even before that, I, I mean, I actually, I really love the medieval world. I think, yeah. ton, I don't know why it was ever called the Dark Ages. I think it's- Because of the enlightenment. Yeah, no, it's, it's fully luminosity, the medieval yeah. world um, in many senses. But really, Christianity changed the game. And I believe it's G.K. Chesterton who said, he said, Europe is the faith and the faith is Europe. And that sounds on face value, perhaps rather provocative. He's not saying that to the exclusion of the whole rest of the world. But what he, what he means by that, if I'm understanding him correctly, is that Europe as we know it today grew out of Christendom. 
in, in Christianity's impact is, is it cannot be more, um, it, it just simply can't be overstated. It's impossible to do so. Um, now, where, where I felt like I saw this very impactfully to perhaps give an example of what I mean mm. is that when I was in Rome this past summer and I saw the Colosseum, excuse me, and understanding the what we would call modern in modern days, you know, the atrocities that occurred in those Colosseums, and to think of how that was so deeply ingrained in the worldview and the day to day life of the entire populace, and how very very quickly too, all of that changed and it completely flipped on its head, and suddenly every human life was worthy of you know it was, it was dignified for the sense that it was human life, you know. Um, a radical, radical Christian ideal that was um, that changed the entire way that the European mind um, started to conceive of things morally and ethically. And now, oh, okay, to fast forward a bit, like going down the rest of, of European history, obviously atrocities have occurred. This is not to whitewash any of that or not to pretend sure, like they yeah, don't no, exist. Um, these both things but, can be equally true. Exactly. Um, you know, I would say, I, I guess to try to steer this shit back to your original question, you Sorry, know, where, wherever, what would you call the West? I would say once, um, once we have the intersection of both the ethical, the ethical and moral considerations of Christianity coming into mixing with the philosophical framework of Greco-Roman antiquity. That's fantastic. That's a fantastic answer, actually. Man, that, I, I like that because it puts the two halves of something together that I hadn't synthesized before. Because you're right, it is, it is the level of moral evolution uh, called upon uh, by Christianity once you start infusing that into the richness of, again, Greco-Roman culture, which was essentially was European culture in many ways at that stage. Then, yeah, that's, the, that's where the, the seed of Western culture was planted and, and, and had a flowering. About the atrocity thing, I just want to go back to that for a second. One of the things that we don't hear about in America is that those level of atrocities have happened all over the world. They have Africa, happened. Africa, Asia, Oceania, South America, like genocide, murder, destruction, part of human history, right? Yeah. It doesn't, like, yeah. And, and so we're led to believe that and I, I want to I'll push on this in a second. We're led to believe that the atrocities of, of the West are the worst atrocities to ever happen in human history, and we're so much worse than everyone else. Shame on us, terrible, kneel, bow to the rest of the world. Okay, now here's what's interesting. I think the only reason that case has any purchase on our hearts is because Christianity calls us to a higher moral standard than the rest of the world, right? It is. It's why, I mean, you're, you're really preaching to the choir about this, but Sweet. just to, um, no, to, I mean, because I, couldn't think more similarly. Um, yes, the thing that is unique about the Western world is because it has. So, so Christianity essentially what it did is it provided a a framework to where you could say this has gone too far. Okay, mm-hmm. it, it's essentially a safety valve. And now this is not to say that people have abused Christianity like they've abused every faith you know that's ever been on on the yeah. planet. You know to Even to align Buddhism. with power and all these stuff. But, it, but you're right. It is the moral compass implanted that by Christianity that tells you that there is a, an abuse occurring. Yeah. It's what tells you that 
you know, pe- people act like the elimination of slavery is like, it, it almost doesn't count for anything because we were doing it. Right. It's, no, it, no one else did that. That's, That's right. immensely important. Yep. Immensely important. The British anti-slavery campaign was was gigantic. People don't even understand. Like the they, don't. they were, I mean, punishing their own businesses. They were sending people out to go patrol. Like it was a whole endeavor. People have no clue how big the scale of this was, and it was undertaken. That whole movement was driven by Christian abolitionists. Yep. In the British Parliament. Yep. And again, like all this stuff has always happened. Um, any any people in power would commit atrocities. The same way that they were committed um, on behalf of, you know, "quote unquote" Western culture, but again, what what we have—I don't want to say to our credit because I'm not like taking this as right. oh, like this is something that makes me better. <laughs> um, but just to put it all in perspective, I mean, the, the U.S. the West is certainly not by any extent uniquely evil. Uh, I think to put it that simply, yes, um, and perhaps I'd even posit that. It, it has things that actually bring about unique attributions of good into the world. And that's, that's what comes from the, the Christian framework. I agree. I mean, there was no, the Muslim slave, Arab slave trade, Muslim slave trade was so much more massive than the transatlantic slave trade. And there was no abolition movement, right? Mm-hmm. Like this is something, and, and I think it's, it's because Christianity live so deeply, let's say, in our bones and in our culture, that the, the, the guilt of, of the times when we culturally haven't lived up to those standards it get, is now getting used against us culturally. Yeah. It's like, oh, we should have been so much better. Now there's some, like, we is such a nebulous term, like, hey, I wasn't around back then. Like, if I yeah. were there, I probably would have said something, you know, because I'd say something today. But it lives within us that we have this moral framework and and it's almost like taking Christianity for granted, like like it's kind of strange because if if Christianity weren't true, I'm going to try and kick my way around this. If Christianity weren't true, why does any of it matter? Oh, we're such an awful nation, awful people, Westerners. We should be feel so guilty and ashamed. Why? Right? Because we're supposed to do better. But Christianity is false. That that applies an objective moral law. Well, if that Christianity is false, there's no objective moral law. Who cares? You know, it's yeah. like, it's like beating, taking our own weapon, using our own goodness against us. And then we buy it and forget to see that like, wait a minute, this sort of goodness, this is my sort, right? It's mm-hmm. kind of, if that, if any of that makes sense. It, it does. Um, and to, to show it, I mean, <coughs> excuse me, um, from another point of view, Tom Holland, who's a, a historian, a really good historian, um, pretty, pretty atheist, perhaps agnostic, but you know, an admitted atheist. Mm-hmm. Wrote a book called Dominion, uh, which is about essentially how the Christian worldview shaped the West. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, before going into this, like I almost thought I, you know, found a lot of affinity with my Greco-Roman, you know, kind of inheritance and and those ancestors and whatnot. But he said, now that I look at it, when I look at my default view, so so almost like culturally, the default operating system or programming through which I view the world, it is Christian. It is fundamentally Christian. He, yeah. he researched this whole book and said, it's not Greco-Roman. It's Christian. Yeah. And, and I mean, the whole, you know, read however many hundreds of pages it is that where he kind of walks through why that is so. But every Westerner 
today, any claim to morality or ethics that they make is rooted in a Christian worldview, whether or not they know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're not like you're not rooting in a Greco-Roman. You know, you're not you're not talking about Zeus. You know, you're not, you're not talking about Jupiter. Like we're not we're not. I've met, but but, one. It, but it's not even that. Like it, it's um it's the simple fact to say that all human life is dignified. Oh, okay. That yes. that that is a that is a um a an incredible statement, especially coming from what it came out of, because infanticide in cultures before was incredible. Mm-hmm. The weak had no value. The you know old the young had had drastically less value. It was not taken for granted that all life was dignified, mm-hmm. not by any means, not yeah. by any means. It's, it's in completely radical and not enough people realize it. Yeah. I, when you start looking into the history of, for example, um, the, a lot of the native cultures of, of uh, North and South America, like human sacrifice, just part of it, like the Aztec ceremonies, like ripping people's hearts out on altars, like that's just what they did. Now that's not an, a, a total incrimination of everything. It's like, it's just an understanding of like, the valuation of a, of a human life. Now, that doesn't mean that all of Europe has valued human life well since then, but that, that, that value is sitting there as a standard mm-hmm. that we're being called to, whether or not we choose to adhere to it, that value, like a North Star being there, yeah. that all, life is in, all human life is intrinsically valuable, that's a, that's a massive innovation. That's a, and not only that, not all human life, but especially the poor, especially the weak, especially the young, like they have, they have equal value to kings. That, from the perspective of God, a king is as valuable as a pauper. Like, I mean, no wonder radical. king, no wonder yeah. kings hate Christianity, right? Yeah, yeah, it is. It is truly radical. Um, I guess to to steer this back a little bit, just to the actual works themselves that have mm-hmm. come out of you know Western culture, in terms of literature and particularly music. Um, which I, I also speak about a lot, um, mm-hmm. is, is that these help pick up on so many of these human aspects. Like they, they can tap into a type of beauty that we don't actively get in everyday life. And they attest to these very things that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. You know, these very powerful, spiritual, but also concrete realities, what life actually is like. And they allow you to understand it in a different way. I think that's that's one of the biggest things um, about you know turning to these works and looking to them for guidance is that they allow you to to comprehend that on a different level. It's the same way where you, for example, could read all day long about doing a push-up. You could get the best books about it, you could watch the best videos on it, and you can understand it conceptually. But until you actually go and do the work, the physical embodied experience of of doing a push-up. You don't get it. You don't yeah. understand what it's like. Um, and art, I think, at its best—visual, musical, literary—it it helps you step into that experience and to express it in ways that everyday life is incapable of doing. Mm. And this is kind of what informs the Rewire the West project. Well, that actually gets me like I've never actually thought is like why is it called Rewire the West? What's up with the what's up with the verb? Like that's not revive the West. It's not reform the West. It's you know it's not resurrect the West. It's rewire the West. Why that particular? Aside from the fact that it kind of rolls off the tongue. Yeah. Um, well, I I definitely like the you know I am's in there. So yeah. the the meter you know, rewire the West. You can kind yeah, of say yeah, it like yeah, that. Yeah. 
Um, but but no, I, I think the actual reason that I chose rewire is because it it purposefully has a double sense of ambiguity. So it's rewire in one sense that is the quote unquote resurrect, you know, like return to to what was there. Rewire it, re, rewire it again in the mm-hmm. same way. But it's also a rewiring, which can also reply like, you know, innovation and in, mm-hmm. in moving forward and doing it a little bit differently. Because I didn't want it to be archaic and simply resurrect the past, you yeah. know, and have nothing. It's it's a rewiring. It's a tapping into the past in order to actually be able to move forward into the future. And mm-hmm. I, I believe we do that by getting in more alignment with what has come before, allowing works of true beauty to change us, and then seeing how that shapes how we move going forward. Mm. So as your so when did you when did you actually start rewire the West? Maybe a year or so ago, or twenty twenty one January twenty twenty one. Oh wow! So watched um, my posted my first video on YouTube in April. Okay, and then so so as you're as you're heading late, at, that's amazing actually because that's right around the same time I started the Renaissance of Ben, which was around oh, October of twenty twenty. So like a couple. So you would have been thinking about it the same time I was. I mean, mm-hmm. there was so much flowering of creative thought about the West and masculinity all going on at that particular season. It's actually like if if you follow Arthur Dane, Blood and Rain, you know, he mm-hmm. uh, his podcast and everything he does started back then and so many content creators on Instagram. There was a, that was a really special moment, I think, that was going on for a lot of us now that I think about it. Yeah. Well, it's funny you mention that because I know, um, so obviously if I started in the new year of 2021, um, I had been, those ideas have been going through my mind in mid to late 2020. Mm-hmm. And a large part of that was, uh, did, did we have the elections that year? I believe so. It, it was COVID and elections. It was yeah, sort so, of an election, so, but yeah. <laughs> so it, yeah, COVID and elections. And I remember specifically that part of it, I just didn't want to have, like, I was just tired of it and I wanted a refuge from it all. And I picked up Shakespeare and read what is now, for many reasons, one of my favorite plays um, by him, Much Ado About Nothing, and mm. fell in love. I mean, I had obviously you know, been familiar with, with Shakespeare's work before that, but it just, it, I reconnected with something that was grand, that was lovely, that inspired my soul and, and gave me, again, it was a balm to B-A-L-M yeah. to the fiery and, and kind of, you know, ingraining, ingraining, uh, I don't even know what to kind of say there. Um, just the, almost like the cheese grater that is modern Oof. culture and, and political, um, political dialogue that well dialogue, if you can even, is it dignified to call Shouting. it that? Uh, yes. Um, yeah. but that, that's what I, the cheese grater analogy is kind of what I'm trying to get at. Cause that's what it feels like. And it felt like a, a balm to that. You know, mm-hmm. something that could just soothe soothe it over and, and be a refuge. And in that, what I realized is that it's not these works necessarily in particular in, in and of themselves, but it actually is it's, it's beauty. And beauty is is embodied in these works. Mm. But it is beauty itself, which is a a refuge from from all of this stuff. And so um to kind of continue with with where I'm just going with this all. Um, I, I talk a lot about beauty on the channel and, and people get infuriated by it. If you say, you know, here's a piece of work that's better than something else. And they say, well, you know, everything is like, first of all, it's all relative. And secondly, how can you say this is better than something else? And I'm saying, and I've almost called this thing. Um, I've tried terming it 
populist elitism, which is saying that you can be elite for a populist reason. And, and what I mean by this, to put it most practically, is that people deserve great beauty. They deserve great beauty. They are actually being robbed and cheated every day that you try to pass off this modern garbage as, as nutritive. Mm-hmm. Every day that you try to pass it off as normal or, oh, you should like this or, oh, it's good for you. No, it's crap. And it's you who are elitist because e- even your pretentious, like the pretensions you have to think that this is art in the first place are insanely narcissistic and elitist. But furthermore than that, what people actually need is beauty in their life because beauty serves as a refuge from all the crap in their life. They don't need more ugliness in their life. Mm. I, I hear that too. Well, it's just art that reflects real life. Real life is <laughs> ugly. It's like, well, yes, it is. So what are you going to do? You're just going to live in ugliness? Yeah. That's no solution. No, you want to look to things that actually inspire you, that like push you across. And, and perhaps it's because I think part of the thing, this is all coming out of the West that is so privileged. And so perhaps people don't realize this, but if you work in, in background, like in milieu that are poor or just not as prosperous, they don't have access to these opportunities. You see how they love beauty. They're not, they're not spending time with these, you know, these crap postmodern pieces of quote unquote art. They're not wasting time with that because it doesn't do anything for them. You know, they're, they're looking to real beauty. And so actually I put this, bring this all full circle, like this populist elitist ideal is to say like people need beauty. That's why I'm so darn passionate about it. It's not because I'm trying to say, oh, look at me. I can appreciate classical music. It's not that it's saying that actually you are impoverished, whether, whether you know it or not by, by thinking that contemporary pop music is, you know, the extent of all that there is essentially. Like mm-hmm. you are being force-fed M&Ms in McDonald's and being told that it's a, a four-star, you know, a, a three Michelin-star restaurant meal. Mm-hmm. Um, you're being told that it's, that it's exquisite and what it is is it's garbage. And actually, you deserve something that's far better. You deserve something that's actually nutritive. That's something that you're actually going to love. You deserve to sit down at a, at a banquet table, you know, and have the most exquisite and wonderful, delicious meal of your life. And that is what these works can offer you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You did a, a great uh, video on your channel called pop is porn. And it's, it's a great, it's a great exploration of that. Like what I, I think that what we're given today in terms of like what my quote unquote art is so denatured and so degraded and so hyper simplified. And that's, that's true in cinema. It's true in music. I would hesitate to even call it cinema. It's just flicks at this yeah. point, right? In music, people don't go to the theater anymore. They don't go to, they don't go to the symphony anymore. You know, it's basically just TV, you know, Netflix series, right? And, and yeah. pop music and, you know, Marvel. And so- Oh, it's, don't get me started on Marvel. That's yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, for sure. Garbage, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and so I think people, they have their taste buds for beauty have been, have been basically just, like a sandpapered off. Right. And so you show yeah. them, you show them something that's truly beautiful or play it for them or, or, or whatever. That's like, they can't, they can't even really engage with it because they've never experienced it's so far beyond their experience. And, and one of the things that I've been saying lately 
is that the degradation of beauty in culture has had a particular impact on men and women because men thirst for beauty. I'm sure women do too, but since this is a podcast about men, men mm. thirst for beauty. And if we can't find it in our culture, we go looking for it the only places that we know, which is in nature, which is fine, right? But that's a particular kind of beauty, right? We're looking for, for human scale beauty. And so the only place that we have to go looking for it is in women. And so we, put, we place our entire hunger and thirst for beauty squarely on the shoulders of women who were never meant to contain all of it to begin with. And so, that's, mm-hmm. and so it burdens our relationship, our, our romantic relationships with men's need for beauty that women can never fulfill because we're supposed to be getting it from our culture that denies it to us, right? Yeah. And, so, and so that's why I think what you're doing is so important because we have to recultivate our taste buds for beauty so that we can begin getting it on demand, <laughs> Put on a symphony. Yeah. Enjoy. Congratulations. You have your beauty for the day. <coughs> Excuse me. I, I think you're, what you say about the taste buds is incredibly spot on because what I know for a fact is that the part of the difficulty is that these things are not easy to engage with. Mm-hmm. And, but you don't expect anything good. You wouldn't want it to be immediately accessible to you the first time you have it. I mean, I could give, I could give a dozen examples of this. Let me just take one from you know, my experience in France, French cuisine, as, as you might know, is it, it has very few times any extreme flavor. What it is, is it's very mm. subtle and very nuanced. And so the mm. sauces that they use, the, the food combinations, it all goes together in a very particular way. And coming from America, for example, where our sugary foods are very, very, very sugary. You know, our fat mm-hmm. foods are very, very fat and salty. Like we, we kind of get these flavor bursts that come out. And the first time that you taste something like French food, it might feel bland because you don't get it. But once you start to have more of it and actually cultivate literally like your taste buds and your palate for it, you start to get the different, the different notes and the different tastes and the different spices that are in there. The same thing could be said of something like a fine whiskey. The first mm-hmm. time that you have a nice whiskey, it might just completely blow your nose off because you don't even have any faculties to process the flavors that you have. But if you spend enough time getting to know scotch, for example, then you can start to appreciate the different notes that that are in there, the different kind of peatiness, how it was maybe roasted, you know, kind of the the salt, like, was it, was it from an island? You know, where, where was it from? Um, you can start to get different essences of these. And so, the same exact thing happens with great art, and I think this is part of the challenge for a lot of people is that they they go to it and they're like, oh, "Well, I just don't get it, or I don't have the patience for it." Or perhaps even they say it wasn't good, you know? Um, because think about it: if I'm if the only thing I'm used to is McDonald's fries, which are very tasty and addicting, then the second I have something that's like a real, you know, home cut, really good, like sweet potato fry. I might not like it at all. Um, I know I'm kind of giving silly examples at this point, but from North Carolina, but it really man, is like the, yeah, the, the same thing um, with great music, great literature. It's like you have to spend time with it. And this is what people up until perhaps like mid 20th century or so um, in the, in the West, at least there was a good habit of this, of, of generations teaching the next generation, regardless of whether they liked it or not at the moment, they, they would teach them things kind of while they were younger. And then those people would come to, to grow up and actually like develop the taste. 
So, mm-hmm. so they kind of taught them, you know, like, hey, you're going to uh, sit down with this, whether you like it or not. And eventually, like, you're going to develop the taste for it. And so, so people would develop taste and they would understand that the more you spend with, the more time you spend with classical music, for example, the more you get out of it. I mean, even on my own journey, you know, I've, I've tried to kind of encourage others by, by talking about my own and even the stuff that like, I'm, I'm able to appreciate now and enjoy now is, is stuff that I wouldn't have been able to get two years ago, not even one. And that's just, you know, my own personal thing. Someone who, who feels like, all right, I have a good understanding of this stuff. You know, I have a good knowledge base of it, but I'm still completely learning more and more. And I get more and more out of it each time. It's the simple truth. The more time you spend with it, the more that you get out of it. The world says masculinity is toxic. Everything the world says is backwards. That means masculinity is medicine. Whatever you struggle with or are suffering from, have you considered that timeless principles of masculinity might be the answer? I said timeless principles though, not the cheap advice you read on the internet about money, girls, and stuff. I mean focus, discipline, and brotherhood the real forces that drove virtuous men's lives for centuries. And not just those, but self-reflection, deep feeling, and faith. The inner elements of life that gave meaning and purpose to the outer. That is what it means to be a man. That is what it's always meant to be a man. And only in our amnesiac age could we forget what's been right in front of us and within us the whole time. Fortunately, we can bring it back. I'm pleased to formally announce my 12-week Renaissance mentorship, developed over 20 years of self-work, refined over two years with private clients, now available to you, my listeners. This is your chance to take all the values of the Renaissance of men and make them real in your life to create your personal Renaissance, but not becoming who I think you should be or who a guru says you should be. I listen to you and help you become who you want to be. How do I do that? You get to find out. And along with that, you get my personal guarantee. In three months, we will permanently change the course of your life as a man, or I will work with you until we do. Visit renofmen.com slash mentorship to watch testimonials and learn more, much more, and find out how you can create your own personal renaissance to make things even sweeter The first two people to mention the code INTRO will get 15% off a 12-week package. Once again, visit renofmen.com slash mentorship to find out more. Here's to a new year, a new you, and a renewed world. make a really good point about a lot of that but french food especially like the joke in american movies if you've seen is that like when the american character goes to like a french restaurant for the first time 
what happens? They bring out a plate of food and there's this little dime size or quarter size morsel on there. And the American's like, where's, where's the food? You know, because <laughs> they're expecting some big, massive steak or burger or whatever. But the thing is, when you go to a, a restaurant like that, and they're hard to, you can find them. They do exist. They're expensive. Like they're very, very expensive, but there's a reason. I remember when I was in, when I was living in New Zealand, I went to a restaurant like that called Clooney. And, you know, mm-hmm. of course the, the interior experience of that was, was incredible. The decor, the, the ambiance, the environment was amazing. All the portions were, were what we might call very, very small. There was nothing like ribeye steak size, but the food was so expertly prepared was the flavor and the texture and the nuance and the subtlety and the combinations of different elements was so expertly prepared, even though the quantity of food wasn't very much, especially over the three hour experience, because they would, you know, everything's timed, right? So it's like, you have some time to eat this, and then they bring you the after course kind of drink and you have that. And then 15 minutes go by and then they bring you the next thing. So your taste buds can reset. Like it's this expertly curated journey through the experience of, of flavor and texture, by the end of that three hours, though the quantity of food was not a lot, I was exhausted. I was literally exhausted. We went back to the hotel room. We had planned, my girlfriend and I, we had planned to go out to like a bar or something afterwards. We were exhausted because the experience of flavor and texture was so rich and so powerful. Like we didn't want to eat anymore. Like if you yeah. can imagine your whole pro, like, I can't eat anymore because the, the, the sense, pleasure, texture experience has been so overwhelming that I'm like, I'm good. I'm going to go back. I'm going to go sleep now. And, and so you, lo- like, you can't see, you can't taste the food with your eyes. You can't experience the food with your eyes, which Americans are, are likely to do. You have to, you have to take it in and then your eyes get opened <laughs> and then yeah. your whole world changes. And you don't do this every week. You do this once a year for a special occasion. Right, but but we get lost in this. No, I want the twenty ounce ribeye steak. Like, well, there's other ways of enjoying food other than that, and this applies to art as well. I, I love that example, and I think too, it's part of what's really nice about that meal that you had, is that actually the meal becomes something more valuable than the sum of its parts. Yeah, in the sense that that three hours, you're certainly not spending three hours eating. So it's not no. about the utilitarian consumption of food. It becomes, it transcends and becomes more about the experience, the decor, the conversation, the presentation of the meal. Like it, it all evolves into something far bigger and something more meaningful. Again, it's a night that you're bringing up right now, not necessarily just because of the food, but because of the experience that you had. I kept. The menu. I would posit that. Yeah, I, I would posit that good art allows you to do just that. Um, even, even actually, to say the experience of going out to a restaurant. Why bother going to a restaurant in the first place? It's not, quote unquote, real life. It's not, quote unquote, what you're going to, is it escapism? No. You don't, it, it, like, this is the whole thing of people being like, well, are you just going into things that don't exist? Like, the world isn't classical music and opera and Lord of the Rings. It's like, well, why do you go to a restaurant? Because, because specifically, because you want a nice break that's restorative, that's refreshing, that you feel good after going to. Like mm-hmm. you want that. And that is what these things provide in the mm-hmm. first place. That's why they're worthwhile. Yeah, there's there's nothing escapist about an artistically prepared meal at all. It's the opposite of escapist, right? Like you're not, I mean, first of all, escapism 
you know, people say like, it's a bad thing. Like, let's just, mm-hmm. let's just stipulate, okay, like escapism is a bad thing. Reading Lord of the Rings is a bad thing. Why? I don't know. Who knows? But <laughs> even if it were, when you go to, okay, it's one thing to listen to a classical music CD on your Bose speaker when you're puttering around the house or cleaning. It's another thing to go to the symphony or it's another thing Absolutely. to go to the theater. There's nothing escapist about that at all because it's embodied. Like when you're yeah. doing something embodied, how could it possibly be escape? What are you escaping from? And so like, so food, like it just takes you so far into yourself and your own experience of yourself. It's just like, I'm just getting destroyed by this chef. What is, what is this person in the kitchen doing? They ruined me. I can't even see them and I'm wrecked. Like that's not escapist at all. And yeah. only by slandering it as escapism can you possibly drive people away, you know, from from this experience of themselves. Yeah. It's 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 warfare. I don't know how else to put it. It's propaganda. Yeah. It's anti-human propaganda. Yeah. Um, two brief notes on that. The first is that Roger Scruton has a lovely quote which says, "Consolation in imaginary things is not imaginary consolation." Oh, Scruton's great. Yeah, I think it's very wise, very concise and wise summation. I would also say that actually what you said, the difference between simply consuming something, even if you get restaurant style food, but you order it and and have it at your house, it's not the same. Even if you listen to an orchestra on CD on your Bose speaker, it's not the same. And the reason is because what you're experiencing is it becomes, once again, more than the sum of its parts when it is embodied because the experience becomes so much more all-encompassing. So for example, if I, if I go to see an opera, where it differs from me watching it on my TV is that I'll, I'll use what I would do in London, for example. I'd get back from work, you know, kind of throw off my stuff, you know, maybe change real fast. I'd go out, I'd walk 45 minutes through London to get mm. to arrive to Covent Garden. I'd get there Maybe I would meet a friend. You know, I'd walk through the garden through this beautiful architecture, like get to see all this stuff. Um, I'd meet a friend there, maybe have a drink before the show. You know, I'd go and, and, and have a call with my then girlfriend at the time, then while sitting and just taking in the ambiance, you know, and, and just kind of relaxing. And then they'd start ringing the bell. It's like, all right, you go up the stairs. They're going to sit down. You're mm. going to do this. Maybe at the interval, you're having a conversation with someone you met. Like it becomes this whole a four to five hour thing. And, and then, by the way, like the walk back at night, you walk through the city, it has a different life. You get to reflect mm. on what you've seen. You know, like the, the experience itself allows the art to resonate with you on such a deeper level because you process it in so many more ways. It's embodied in so many more different ways, every aspect of the evening. And so it's not simply the three hour quote unquote consumption of an opera. What it is, <laughs> right. it's it's the the actual six hour or so, six to seven hours perhaps, mm. overall experience from leaving your door and going back. Oh, I got so okay. I got a couple of things I want to say in response to that. So the first thing, the first thing is that and the beautiful thing about a live artistic performance is that you're there's always a component of being on the edge of your seat because the performers you hope that they don't, they can screw up, but, but like, yeah. but the, the slightest mistake, you know what I mean? It's, it's like you feel the impact of it versus going to a sports game where it's like mistakes are just kind of part of it. Obviously you don't want the top performers to make a big mistake at a crucial moment at the end of the game, 
but it's only when the tension is most heightened that you feel that. Like, so yeah. someone misses a three pointer at the end, at, at the start of halftime or whatever. Big deal. Mm-hmm. You got a whole other half. But like, if someone, God forbid, knock on wood, a, a top level performer screws up just a little bit, like an opera singer's voice cracks or something like that, you'd like, oh, you know, that's not mm-hmm. supposed to happen. And that tension of being there, of being in the moment, like, I'm so lost in this right now. And the slightest touch on it would, would, would take me out of this moment of transcendence. That's part of the joy of a live performance that you can't get in a CD because a CD is already perfect. Like no one's going to put out yeah. a CD. They're going to, they're yeah, going to take great. it again until they get it right. Yeah. I, I, um, I touched on this point in one video, I think it was called why opera is based AF. And that was, that was one of my <laughs> points. Titles actually. are so good. Yeah. Um, that was one of my points is that you're there and the, the sheer professionalism and yeah. expertise of this performers is amazing. Because you're right, like a finished movie, they could have done something in 100 takes. A finished CD, the same exact thing. But when you're really there, it's on the edge of a knife. And it's miraculous. I mean, it really is incredible how often they get it right. And that's not because it's easy. It's because it really speaks to human excellence. I love human excellence in whatever form, whether it's someone being a chef, being a rock climber, being a singer, whatever it is, athletes. Mm -hmm. You know, to see them perform at the the pinnacle of human performance is that in itself is exciting. It's gratifying because it's it's actually, I would say, if you want to put a spiritual backdrop to it, it's getting a glimpse at the potential of God's creation, hmm. where what we see on Earth doesn't even actually tap into a, a fraction of one percent of that, but it gets closer than what you might see in every day. And mm-hmm. so you get there and not only are you taking in this work, but every single performer, I mean, it's insane. Like an opera, I'll keep going back to this, mm-hmm. you know, you could have at least 50 people in the orchestra. Think of that. All these people who have dedicated their lives, every single individual and the orchestra alone has dedicated his or her life to becoming the best performer that they can. Yes. That is remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. It's like really that, special it- to see. I think I said that in one of the in one of the videos that I did. I'm pretty sure, and we'll go to those later. But like the idea yeah. that any one any one performer, like take the London Symphony Orchestra, just as an example, you take the third chair violin player in the London Symphony Orchestra, right, and you put them in your living room, just you and them, and let them play for you. They will make you weep in minutes. You'd That's how incredible, incredible. And they're the third chair. Like, you know, they're not even the soloist. They're not even the second. They're the, they're the third chair. And the level of collective perfection that is embodied in, in an orchestra at that level, it's impossible to imagine. And the reason why it's impossible to imagine is that they're all so good and it fits together as one seamless whole that it's like you can't, it's incomprehensible. Like the beauty blends into this tapestry of incredibleness that you can't pick out any one individual. And yet that's the bed that the soloist sits on to do what they're doing. So while we're fixated on the soloist, all these other performers are masterful, masterful at an incomprehensible level. And that we're fixated on the soloist that we lose sense of the context and we almost take it for granted. But when you zoom in on that level, it's like, I would love anyone, any, if there's any third chair London Symphony Orchestra violinist listening right now, you're welcome to come over and play for me anytime. You know, that, that experience is special. 
it, it really is. I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, there's one thought that came to me while you were speaking about that. Oh, part of, part of what's so beautiful about it too is that true excellence is, I, I mean, first of all, it takes a lifetime yeah. of dedication and effort and expertise to get to where they can and to perform professionally on that level. But furthermore, the best in the game, they go one step further and they make it look easy. Mm-hmm. That, that's where the true beauty of it is. I was watching um, a ballet this past weekend with my wife. Uh, she, she obviously loves me very much because she tolerates me you know, sitting down on the TV and watching a ballet. Watching ballet but on TV. We were TV. observing this with, <laughs> yeah, with, uh, I have a subscription. Not now, literally, like, the ballet the is only, on. Yeah, no, the, the, literally like the only subscription I have is to, to Marquee TV, which is like Shakespeare, uh, opera, ballet, classical music. It's super, um, I mean, for, for me, it's perfect. This, but, this is a streaming and, network? Yes. Yes. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. You might inspire don't, don't me to plug Netflix, my. Don't have Netflix, but I have that. Yeah. You might inspire <laughs> me to plug my TV back in. <laughs> there you go. So, anyways, we were we were watching this, and just, I mean, the 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 first ballerina, we were just watching what she was doing, and at one point, yeah. I just like completely lost it because she did something on stage. I went, "What in the world?" Yeah. Because I I knew. I mean, first of all, I I say I know, but I probably only know a fraction of quote unquote knowing, you know, in, in its full sense of how difficult it was, what she was doing, mm-hmm. but I could see she did a move and I was just like, that is insanely difficult. Yep. But what was remarkable about it is that she made it look like it was the easiest thing in the world. Effortless, like, like a feather. Yes. And you see, you see Horowitz do the same thing when he performs Mozart. I love this. There's this one, perhaps on YouTube, you can find it, a recording of, um, and performing Mozart's 23rd piano concerto. And you have the symphony kind of around him playing, and then he'll go into his piano things. And he's just remarkably casual. And, and he'll kind of like throw his hands in the air and just do this. And then, oh, his part's coming up. All right. He just kind of, you know, lackadaisically drops on the piano and then starts, you know, playing Mozart and just crushing it, you know, to, to a level that you and I could only dream of. And it's, it's just entertaining to watch. He's not doing it in a show-offy way by any means. It's just, you know that this is embodied excellence. And I think, I've always said that I love human excellence, but now that we're kind of digging into it more, I think it is truly because of what I said earlier. It's because it allows you to see a potential of, it allows you to see a glimpse of the full potentiality that is God's creation and just the beauty of that. Mm-hmm. I went to see Jordan Peterson in concert concert, quote unquote, on uh, Jordan <laughs> Peterson Live on, yep. uh, I guess it was this past Monday night. So just five or six uh, days ago. And, and my friends and I were going and we're like, does he just go on at 7.30? Like what happens? And it's like, no, there must be someone to warm up the crowd. Like <laughs> you can't just have Jordan Peterson walk on stage cold. So we we're trying to figure out what's, what, if there is going to be an opening act, what is the opening act going to be? And I was surprised because it was a solo classical guitar player. Right. Oh, wow. And, and, uh, finger, finger style, classical guitar. And mm-hmm. like, and I was watching him and listening to him perform and the music that was pouring out of this, this instrument was incredible. It's just like gushing forward with this guy's two hands. Like how is he playing multiple melodies and bass lines with this, with 10 fingers? And, and he disappeared 
And the fact that it was coming from a single instrument disappeared, and it was just music coming from, from this point on stage. And, and it's that moment of, of transparency, like you're talking about David Horowitz. It's, it's that the, the player has disappeared, and the instrument has disappeared. And music seems to be coming from out of nowhere. Like you see the person and you see the instrument and it's like, they have something to do with what I'm experiencing, but what I'm experiencing is so far beyond these objects. Hmm. And that's, that's the beauty of, of, of what people can experience. And, and so for a moment, I want to explore the idea that it, it seems at some point, probably in the past 60 or 80 or so years, that these, are, these very human artistic experiences, experiences of art have become elitist. And, and, and to the point where to talk about this in this way, like I can imagine a lot of people are listening like, wow, I've never thought of art that way before. Because art is some experience that's been separated from them. That's like, oh no, this is for people with lots of money and lots of education and lots of class and lots of style. And you don't, you don't have access to that and you can't understand it anyway. And that seems like something that's been going on for at least longer than my lifetime almost, right? And so I want to talk about this because I think maybe what you're, some of what you're trying to do with rewiring the West is rewire the experience of art and beauty back into not just Western culture, but the people and let them know that this is part of their inheritance. Mm-hmm. It, it always has been, it always is, and it always will be. It's made for them. Mm-hmm. That's who it's made for. It's, it's made for people. It's made for you and me. It is, it is these, these magical moments that even earlier this week, I, I took a moment just to journal a little bit, reflect. Before I did so, I listened to the, the prelude of Lohengrin, Act One by Wagner. And mm-hmm. if you haven't heard it, it's magical. The first time, I'll tell you about the first time I heard it, actually. I was in my flat in London, and it was late at night. I was going to brush my teeth, and for whatever reason, I said, I want to listen to some music while I brush my teeth. So I pull up, I was like, oh, what's something by Wagner? And I put this on and the strings start up. Yeah, and, and the, but the strings start up. And within the first five seconds, I was hypnotized. I said, whoa, I can't. And I, I literally just like, like a zombie-like, put my toothbrush down, mm. backed up, sat on my couch, and just sat there for the next 11 minutes, listened to it, completely mm. hypnotized. And what it evokes, I can't tell you, I can't tell you what it evokes. It's something that you have to experience for yourself. But the reason I'm going down this is to tie it back to what I was doing with journaling. It allowed me to enter into, when I listened to it earlier this week, it allowed me to enter into a headspace and a realm of gratitude and a almost a removed observance of my life in a sense, just to step back and almost get in touch with what actually matters. And I felt immensely, immensely grateful, like immensely at peace, immensely just, wow, uh, so, so aware of the many graces in my life, uh, all undeserved, all of those. I, I was brought into this unbe- undescribable awareness of it all, okay? And that was for me. Like, like that was, it, it was a gift to me. And in, in the same way that it was a gift to me, it can be a gift to you. It can be a gift to whoever is listening to this. It, it is a gift for you. It is a gift for, for you to take that, to be able to 
tap into the rich tapestry that is life, the rich tapestry that is the everyday moments, and to to see them with this almost a sobering, but but not only sobering at at times also beautifully enhancing perspective, just to see it for what it is and appreciate it. And so, to bring this back to what you said of of making it for the people, I, I think that's exactly who it's for. It's, it's always been for people, whether whether others have tried to co-opt it or not is, is almost beside the point because the fact of the matter is that right now it is within your grasp. All of these works, they're in the public domain. They're mm-hmm. easily accessible anywhere. Yeah. Um, whether it's musical, literary, artistic, they are for you. They're begging you to, to interact with them in the sense that they, they have so much knowledge and wisdom that they can imbue to you if only you'll reach out and invite it to do so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I agree. Like when I was researching Hamlet for my, for my Hamlet podcast, which I'm very proud of, I'll link that in the show notes. Probably a lot of people have heard it who are listening and all, everything, that we're, yeah, <laughs> everything <laughs> that we're talking about, 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 by the way, you're, you know, Tom Holland, my opera's based, uh, AF, Papa's porn, all this stuff. These will all be linked in the show notes. So for anyone who wants to explore deeply, I'll make sure this is all embedded in there. But when I was researching Hamlet, I realized that like, Shakespeare, all of his plays, they were written for the public. Like yeah. just average people would walk in and, 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 and listen to Shakespeare. It was entertainment. Like, oh, the new Shakespeare play is on in the same, like not exactly the same, but in the same way, like the new big blockbuster movie comes out. Not even blockbuster, really. It's like Shakespeare's got a new play out. What are you doing tonight? Let's go check out Shakespeare. And it's mm-hmm. like, these who weren't educated, most of the people listening in the theater couldn't read. Like the reason why they had those boxes was because that's where the where the royalty or the elites or the wealthy would sit, and everyone else was just kind of down on the floor standing. It's but these They're were called the groundlings for a reason. The groundlings, exactly. Yeah. exactly. Like they were not wealthy, they were not educated, but they would go and listen to Shakespeare. And now you fast forward five hundred years, and it's like, oh, sorry, no, you have to go to school to enjoy Shakespeare. We're so intelligent now. We have to. You have to go to school to enjoy the thing that you know <laughs> that even average people enjoyed weekly. And it's this profound, yet another inversion. It's this profound inversion of values where it's like we've been deprived of stuff. And it's it's kind of a testament to. I mean, yes, okay. There's a there's a linguistic component that the, that you know Shakespeare wrote in a language that we don't speak, right? Or in a linguistic style that we don't speak. He wrote in English, obviously, but. You know, there was a way of speaking that you have to learn how to interpret, but the themes and the ideas and the characters, like all these things made sense to audiences back then, but now we're so smart, they don't make sense to us now. Like, how does that, like, how does that fit? Right. Yeah. To to your point, this is for the people. Yeah. I want to draw a distinction because I think we're actually talking about two different types of elitism. Okay. So the one where you referred to is is the sense of oh you have to be very very enlightened to understand Shakespeare and all this what whatnot <laughs> and you have to have attended the right universities whatever um, I think that's actually if not dead certainly on its way out I think that perspective okay. I think the elitism that I refer to is actually it's it's far more more sinister in that what it is it's these people saying saying that you have to be enlightened and you just don't understand these things about complete garbage. They're, they're saying that about complete garbage. Like at least before it was, okay, this, this snooty professor may be saying about something that's actually good, 
but now it is people saying a bit about utter crap. Oh, and great they keep point. telling you that that the you know that the emperor's clothes are marvelous and you just can't understand it. The reality, he is freaking naked. He has nothing on. This is a complete sham, but but it's being sold. I think that type of elitism is at least from my perspective, you know, I'm a little bit younger than you, but I think what my generation, people younger than me are experiencing is far more of that, is far more of these pretentious idiots mm-hmm. and, and evil people. I, I mean, like I, I really have, I lose no love um, because I think, it, I think it's so awful what they are doing mm-hmm. is they're, te- they're degrading people by telling them that this is art in the first place. They're telling that you shouldn't respect this and what they're serving up is crap on a golden platter. I mean, that is really what it is. It is it is despicable, disrespectful to the everyday man, the everyday woman, it, because they deserve better. I'm going back to this point of like the populist elitism. You know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just going to try to coin that phrase now. Like Good. it really is, they deserve better. And I'm tired of these people trying to, to you know, shove this this crap in their face and just be like, not only do, not only does someone throw poop in your face, but they actually tell you that you should like it, and they tell you that if you don't like it, it's just because you're not alive. Mm-hmm. Like the banana tape to a wall, like that. Yeah. Like yeah. It's yeah. Like you, oh, you just don't get it because you're not smart enough to understand this objective yep. piece of garbage, right? And the, and the reason yep. why it's you can even pretend it's not an objective piece of garbage is because someone paid millions of dollars for it. It's like oh, someone paid billions of dollars for this. Wow, it must it must be intelligent. It's like no, it's it's trash. It's, it's <laughs> It's literal trash yeah. that, that they've fooled, that they've laundered some money to make you think that it's important, right? That's a, that's a great point about the elitism. You know, that, that not, only have, not only have they um, made the, the truly great works of art um, inaccessible and degraded our taste buds for being able to experience them, they've taken that and into that gap, they've put trash and say, mm-hmm. and, and, and then told you that this trash you're not capable of understanding. So you're sitting with deprived of beauty, being, being almost force-fed garbage that you're like, you don't even deserve this. Profoundly yeah. dehumanizing when you put it that it, way. It, it is. Dehumanizing is the accurate word. And I'm glad you use that. Because when you take that and then compare it to someone who at least it's, it's obvious that they know more than you about a certain thing, it's like, well, Nine times, ten times out of ten, I'm going to go and sit down with that person, even mm-hmm. if they are a little like hooty snooty, because at least they're they're there to teach. You know, at least I can learn something from them. Like it's it's not, you know, at least the thing that they're talking about is beautiful in the first place. You know, I, yeah. so so all that being said, um, again, obviously, I I think it is dehumanizing what the uh, elites of today and the people who do who are know, elitist in these ways are doing because they're, again, serving up crap on a silver platter and telling you that, that it's something that you're just not, you just don't get. You're just not smart enough to experience. When in reality, what the everyday man and Mormon deserves is beauty and it is great works of art. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very much as an emperor's no clothes, like that's trash. I know that that's trash. Right. Okay. So, so let's bring this back to rewire the West because all the values that we're talking about right now you've embedded in your website, in your YouTube channel, and in your emails, especially like all these different values of making, of, of again, rewiring the West, of recultivating taste buds, of re-experiencing beauty, you know, in, in sound and in art and in, 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 in sculpture. It's all part of, of what you do. So like, I'm just going to go free reign and just go crazy because like now I, I, I got it before, 
But now I really get it. And, and now, and I think everyone listening will understand why what I think you're doing is so important. Because what you do with Rewire the West is what I, I, I really wanted to be able to do more of with uh, the Renaissance of Men. Like I really intended to do much more poetry interpretations. I wanted to get an art, inter- art interpretation, but you know the, the journey becomes what it is. And so now I explore mm-hmm. all these things that I do and I get to do my poetry episodes, which is the chance to instantiate those values in a really powerful and potent way in small doses. But what you do is you do so much more of, of what I, what I, I don't want to say I wish I could do, but like you're, it's not what I wish I could do because you do, you embody the values that I, I want to do more of, you know what I mean? So please just kind of, just kind of go with that. Wow. Um, well, first of all, thank you for the, the high praise. It, mm. it really does mean a lot and it certainly means a lot coming from you. So mm. I definitely appreciate that. Um, in the sense of just, man, I, I mean, it is pretty open-ended and, and maybe I need a little bit more direction. Um, sure, I think fine. with, yeah, I mean, tell me like what in particular, what what avenue would you like me to go down? Because mm-hmm. I, I would love a little bit of steering right here. So for giving you some direction, I can do that. And um, I would say, what do you love most about what you do? Let's start there. I really love conveying passion and seeing how that actually makes a difference in people's lives. So probably what I love most about what I do is just simply the emails that I get from people Oh wow! where they have interacted with this stuff and it's actually made a difference in their life. I think that's one of the most wonderful things. I mean, every, every time I get one of those emails, it makes my week really. Um, and so just knowing that what I'm talking about, what I'm doing that, you know, I'm not just talking about it as if like talking about an ideal that has no practical implications in reality. It's like, no, there actually is meat behind what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. And that's nice just to feel like you're actually making an impact in others' lives. I'm mm-hmm. sure that this is something that you've experienced as well, you know, mm-hmm. plenty of times to like, uh, that's the ultimate thing that you can be grateful for. It's just when someone comes up to you and be like, hey, you made a difference. Now my life is better off because of it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in, in my case, it's not even like really even me who's making the difference. I'm just saying, hey, here are things that will make a difference in your life. You should check them out. Mm-hmm. And then people go and check them out and they do inevitably make a difference in their life. And then they just say, you know, hey, I really appreciate you pointing me in that direction. It made a big impact. But I think it, I think it is actually, I mean, I know what you mean. Like, it, like the email that you write about Wagner is not Wagner, right? Like that, mm-hmm. that's, they're not the same thing. But what I see you doing that I think is really important is it, it would be one thing if you and I were just sitting here talking about works of art uh, and beauty that have inspired us, right? But we're also talking about how a lot of people's taste buds for being able to experience that art have been sanded down. And so it's kind of like there needs to be this rehabilitation of the, of the aesthetic artistic sense that the artists themselves didn't have to do. Like Shakespeare didn't have to, you know, uh, we'll, we'll like spoon feed people what he was yeah. doing. Right. And, and, and he didn't. It, and I actually, I just want to pause it yeah. because I, I don't think people actually like, you might say that, but people might not believe it. I, I am here to say a hundred percent. That is true. That is true. There have been some really great papers and, and just kind of academic writings and whatnot that, that I've come across that show that posit the thesis, essentially that people in Shakespeare's time were insanely more self-aware yeah. than, than people in our age are. Um, and that's not to say like, oh, the 
the past was inevitably greater. It's to say that these kind of moments come in ebbs and flows. And just as it happened in Elizabethan England at the time Shakespeare was writing, like people were, they had a self-awareness to them that we lack. And so he, he really did not have to spoon feed people this. People were flocking to it because not only was it, you know, witty and, and good, but also it, it could entertain, but it entertained in a way that uplifted them. Yeah. And to, again, tie this back to some of what we see today, art should ultimately uplift. And I think we find that the best stories do. Lord of the Rings does. Even the original trilogy of Star Wars does, you know, because it's a boy who, who had hope and he hung on to it in the face of all odds. And, and look, like it ended up, things ended up for the better, you know, and, and to show a complete contrast to that, look how the new, the, the latest trilogy of Star Wars completely desecrated Luke's legacy. Yeah. They said, oh no, someone intentionally, someone who's, who's hopeful like that can actually last. They'll become a cynic. They'll become so much of a cynic that they actually, uh, contemplate murdering someone for upholding the ideals that they once upheld. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Think about that. And so in Shakespeare's time, just to bring this back full circle, it wasn't force feeding. You know, it was, it was really like people had, um, they had standards that they would hold the playwrights themselves to, mm-hmm. and the playwrights would deliver. Mm-hmm. You mentioned um, Much Ado About Nothing, and one of the things I wanted to say is that movie was actually excellent. I remember watching Kenneth it. Kenneth Branagh? Kenneth Branagh, yeah, and, and I think yeah. that, that was the one with Denzel Washington and Emma mm-hmm. Thompson. Emma Thompson? Yeah, Emma Thompson, right? And so, and so like, people through Kenneth Branagh is probably one of the best um, adapters of Shakespeare mm-hmm. for the modern day of putting him into cinema. I need to see the, the Kenneth Branagh Hamlet actually that's on my list, but like, but you're right. Like back then people didn't have to be, um, they, they didn't have to rehabilitate their sense because everything that they valued hadn't been con- so consistently and thoroughly destroyed. Right. Mm-hmm. And you could have Shakespeare playing with the idea of like, well, okay, so I'm going to invent this character Hamlet, who's actually like a very human hero. <laughs> Right. And I talking about this in the podcast where it's like Hamlet has all this self doubt and is conflicted and, you know, never really decides to take decisive action. Like we're familiar with heroes doing, like, I'm going to do this thing. He's like, kind of stumbles into his own destiny. And, you know, it's, it's this strange thing. It's like that, but that, that freedom to explore the notion of heroism itself, right, was just kind of there. And now it's like, no, now we can't even have heroes. We have to demolish heroes. And we have to, mm-hmm. you know, raise up essentially superhuman women. And it's what it is. Raise up superhuman women who aren't like any actual women who are like the, perf- the perfected version of some human in a little tiny girl body, right? That's, that's our heroes now. It's like, that's not actually yeah. a hero. It's not, even a, it's not even a person, right? And so, yeah. We have- and so, sorry, just on the, on the female note too, um, Shakespeare's women are some of the most incredible women. Yes, Think about this, like like for a time that was so quote unquote supposedly patriarchal. I mean, those female characters now today's quote unquote strong female characters they, they're practically just men. You know, they they do all the things that men would have done in superhero films. You know, ten years ago. Yeah. But Shakespeare's women they bring a cunning, a wit, a, a strength that is that is diverse from that of the men that he yeah. writes. But they are just as lovable. They they are they're incredible characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that gets that gets lost. Like if you ever really want to know, you know, how society viewed women and how women viewed themselves, right? Prior to propaganda, 
just go read great literature, right? Mm-hmm. Go read Jane Austen, right? Like Jane, Jane <laughs> you know, you can just read it and it's like in Jane Austen, it's in Pride and Prejudice. She paints such a moving picture of the different kinds of women, you know, and, and, mm-hmm. and how they fit or read Virginia Woolf. Right. And you can read these great works of literature and you can see that, you know, women were laboring under the yoke of oppressive patriarchy. It's like, no, they had their own inner lives, their own realities that they were happy to navigate. And that was completely separate and balanced with men. And it's almost like we can't see through 150 years or more of, of feminist propaganda to see how the reality actually was like, no, don't go. Don't go look at that. They take away our ability to appreciate great art, to engage with it, that it's even valuable, and then they give us garbage instead, and then and then we lose all connection with our history so that we can be told who we are rather than actually know who we are, right? And mm-hmm. when you know who you are as a man become and, and a woman too, you become dangerous. And I think that's a big part of the, the you know, vacuuming out beauty from our society and, and weakening us, particularly as men in a, in a special way that makes us almost easier to control because if we could engage with pick your great arts, we're picking on Shakespeare right now and, or whatever, like poetry, whatever we would actually like, no, that's crap. And your emperor has no clothes. Exactly. I love that. So let's, let's work through some of the, some of your favorite, um, some of your favorite videos or some of your favorite articles, because I want to, what I would like to do is uh, the the vision that I have in my mind is, is to to make part of this conversation at least practical. So someone's listening to yeah. this, like, cool, I get it, I get the vision. Like, where do I start? And then what's my first step? And then what's my second step? What's the training wheels I got to put on the bike so that I can learn to ride the tricycle and then I can learn to ride the bicycle and then the motorcycle, right? Like, how can we yeah. how can we begin moving um, men and the women listening to in that direction? Um, well, thanks for that. I think probably initially. Just go and check out the channel. Check out the website if it's, if it's something you like. But yeah. but but I mean, be, I'm actually going to draw out some steps here. You know, um, experience some of what the channel has to offer. Um, it's it's a, a rather kind of diverse field, and so there are different places to start. You know, you could start with a video like "Pop Is Porn," which is um, again talking kind of about music and whatnot, and, and trying to challenge some of our you know, presumptions about that. Um, there's another video very in a very different vein called Beowulf and Toxic Masculinity, which is um, a dive into looking at masculinity as how it was portrayed in a, in obviously an old English poem and how that can be applicable to our lives today. Um, one of the things that I just, as a creator that I really love was the series I did on Dante. Mm. It was the first series I did where I was actually on camera, and it was a dive into Dante's Purgatory, which most people only know Inferno. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the Divine Comedy is Inferno, Purgatorio, and Paradiso. But it was a look at the Divine Comedy through the lens of self-development. So essentially, Dante and his Purgatorio, he's going up this mountain, and each mountain, is, or sorry, each terrace of that mountain is curing him and all the souls on each terrace. Mm. of one of the sadly Devin, uh, seven deadly sins. And so it's a look at how that can actually be applied to our own lives. And, and I think it's a good, perhaps 
you know, what I hope to have done with it is to provide an example of how you can look at something in literature and actually get a, a rather concrete glimpse at how this can impact your life practically. Because Dante provides some wonderful examples. And now what, what I do, again, I, I speak about it very kind of down to earth in, in the sense of a, um, again, self-development perspective. But now imagine actually reading it where you're getting all those uh, self-development nuggets, if you will, but you're also getting it with the art of Dante, you know, the, the beautiful oh, wow. poetry of it, the, the symbolism. I mean, that, that's what happens when you actually read the darn thing. Um, yes. So, which, which I, which I hope people will do. Um, even, even better if you can do it in Italian, because then, I mean, that's just full body Dante, man. It's, it's amazing. Um, first learn Italian, so, then read Dante. <laughs> yes. Um, but, but I, I think those are some good, places to start. Um, I'm trying to, I really, on a, on a personal level, I was really proud of the modernity has cheated you video mm-hmm. that I put out more so aesthetically, because I believe if, if anyone wants a, an indication of perhaps where the channel is going, that is certainly where I will be taking it. Um, in the sense of having, like trying to create art that is beautiful too. I, I don't, I don't simply, and this is, this has been the biggest challenge since day one will is that I have been, you know, talking about things that are beautiful and actively aware that I cannot do so while speaking in a room by myself mm. into a camera Yeah, because, because what a hypocrite, right? <laughs> I, I have to try to do it to the best of my ability in a way that I'm actually, you know, conveying things beautifully. And so I believe this particular video, the modernity has cheated you on. I, I shot it in London and was able to get some really good B-roll of just the beautiful architecture of the city and kind of what what I would share would cut back and forth between a voiceover and in-person and um, the in-person, like I got to use Shakespeare's globe as a backdrop mm. and St. Paul's Cathedral and then you know got to play around some B-roll. And even the music I got to incorporate some of my favorite classical music. So particularly, um, it was the prelude to Act 3 of La Traviata by Verdi. That's an opera. Um, in the middle of the piece somewhere is uh, a piece from Carmen, uh, Bizet's opera. Mm-hmm. And then there's, there's just a couple other like classical pieces. But, but to actually string together, finally, I felt like it was you know, the connection of, all right, Got bringing the music, bring the visuals, bring the content more or less, um, and trying to end on a well, perhaps pointing out a problem that's present. What I don't want to do is I don't want to be a polemicist and only talk about what's going wrong in the world mm. all the time. I ultimately want to end up on a positive note and say this is what all this can point to. And so, I I hope I, I would like to think that that video was a good culmination of that pursuit. Um, although a culmination, which turns into the launching point for what's to come. So if I can tease that, I'll, I'll simply say that this, uh, Thanksgiving week, I don't know when this podcast will come out, but Mm. the week of Thanksgiving, 2022, I will be in Rome in a very particular micro state in the heart of that city, getting some beautiful, beautiful footage. And if, if you have figured out where it is, mm. um, you know, that, that's going to be the backdrop for a lot of wonderful stuff to come. So 
that's kind of the direction where I'm going is, is trying to inspire people with the actual visual beauty of what's going on. Um, you know, trying to bring in more music and whatnot um, to make the actual experience of the videos also point to the ideal that I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. But let's, let's bring this back to the practical thing of what, you know, where can people go? I'd say check out the channel, check out some of those videos I, I just said. But then every week I put out an email that kicks off with a quote, um, some weekly updates, but then it has a video of the week, it has an article of the week, it has a painting of the week, and it has music of the week. And so I think that's a great way to get into it in the sense of like, hey, if you just don't really even know where to start and just want you know, servings of stuff to come your way each week, well then, you know, that's where you go. If, if you go there, you're going to get a video, you're going to get a classical painting, you're going to get an article about a classical work, and you're going to get um, typically literature, and you're also going to get, you know, a great piece of classical music and some background and, you know, um, I, I guess some description of, of what it is that you're actually uh, dealing with in each email. So that's a great place to start. Um, everyone who signs up to the list will also get my ebook on Shakespeare mm-hmm. in which I look at five different chapters um, or five different plays of Shakespeare and try to tie them back to, to our lives today in a very practical level. I, I'm trying to remember the whole subtitle of the book, but it's called The Bard and the Bees, mm-hmm. What Shakespeare Taught Me About Sex, Evil, and Life in Our Modern World. Mm. I'll have to go check this out later to see if I actually got that tagline right. But I think that's it. Um, so anyways, you know, they'll get that. So it's something that they can read and kind of dive into like, all right, how does something like Shakespeare, how, how can it actually, what actual practical takeaways can it have? I would like to think that in the book, I, I do a good deal of sharing that in terms of showing a, a reader like, hey, this is actually something that you can do. And so at the very least, it's showing them that, hey, this is possible. Like, yeah, if you, if you don't believe me, sign up for the emails, check out the book. And if you give it its due, I, I would like to think that you'll start to have a better idea for how you can actually apply these things to your life. And and then, of course, the the um, the website has more articles on you know, um, how to understand classical music, both in terms of kind of how they do the titles of it, about the different periods of classical music. So Baroque, classical, romantic, um, and it has different recommendations for each period. I mean, I I really just try to have it be a beginner's thing because the thing is, this is a journey that I'm on too, you know, and I'm essentially just documenting my journey and, and sharing it with others as I go in hopes that they also get um, a lot of out of it along the way as well. Mm-hmm. I think what what one of the things I love most about what you do is that you're talking about what we might call like high aesthetics, right? Art and beauty at the at the highest at the highest level of achievement, and you don't just do it in like you know Microsoft Word Calibri kind of documents. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like right. I mean, right? You invest yeah. your time, your money, and your energy a substantial amount of it and making what you do as beautiful aesthetically to create the the proper way to appreciate the things that you're talking about. And I think that's a really underappreciated, um, underappreciated aspect of content creation. Like you do honor to the pieces that you're talking about by investing your own creative self and, and formatting, you know, that's such a, a bearing, a boring word anyway, 
formatting and, and, and editing and, and shooting and videography and B-roll to really make it be like, no, I'm going to communicate to you about these great works of art in a modern style that, that speaks to us, the meta communication of it, like aesthetics matter. And so I'm going to make my aesthetics matter to make the point. And, and I think that's, that's one of the most impressive things about what you do is, is, you know, um, when I, when we first met and started talking and I went to your website and signed up for the email list and got the Shakespeare book and started watching the videos, it's like, oh, wow, this guy takes it really seriously, right? Because it would be, it would be easy. And there are a lot of channels on YouTube that do this, that talk about art, but don't invest any of themselves in the aesthetic, right? And maybe the information is good and maybe they do some B-roll cuts away to stuff like that, right? And so you get the information, but you don't get the experience, and you've invested a lot of yourself in creating an experience for the viewer or an experience for the reader. And I think that's so totally different. And it's really high effort, which is everything I do is super high effort. So I appreciate that, that, you, that you do that, really. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, you. You certainly get it as well because you're right. All your stuff is uh, very much in the same vein of, I know that you put yourself into it and really appreciate that. Um, I would say that, yes, all of, all of what I've tried to convey I made a very conscious decision that I don't want it to be informational. Yeah. I want it to be inspirational. Yeah, great. And so, and so all of that, like it is conveying information, but the biggest thing that it needs to convey is a sense of inspiration. Like this needs to be something that is going to motivate someone to actually go and, you know, do something like to, to make a change, to, to make their life for the better, because no one cares about the information is completely useless if it has zero impact in your life. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, you could have all this information, you could have all this knowledge, but, um, per- perhaps I don't know if this is a, a good, I don't know if this is a good definition of wisdom, but just kind of on the fly, I'll propose mm-hmm. it, but wisdom being knowledge applied well, because knowledge by itself is essentially without value in, in wisdom is knowing how to, what to do with that knowledge when to do what you do with that knowledge mm-hmm. and, and how to do it well. And so to bring this back to, you know, videos and whatnot, um, it, all the content that I put out with Rewire the West, I want it to ultimately be inspirational. Like this is something that, you know, is, is motivating and it's something that can inspire you to, to hire ideals to do things. I mean, like Lord of the Rings, I, again, perfect example of, of art that inspires it's not a, you could know all the like little facts you want to know about Elvish or about the geography and topography of Middle Earth. But what's most impactful, what you remember from the story of Lord of the Rings is those moments of inspiration that come across, those moments of hope, those moments of, as, as Tolkien coined it, you catastrophe, as in a, a mm. positive catastrophe, something that unexpected grace and, and to put it simply, a happy ending. Like that is what is inspiring about a lot of this stuff. And that's what ultimately, you know, has millions of people around the world every day walking away from Tolkien and feeling inspired. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you mentioned Tolkien because I've said many times on different podcasts, including my own, that it was uh, Lord of the Rings that, that was the very beginning of my journey through masculinity, was recognizing all really? the different, yeah, yeah, was recognizing all the different ways masculinity is reflected in Lord of the Rings. And, and what I've learned. And I learned that in like uh, fall 2001, so September, October, mm-hmm. November 2001, in a class on Jung that I took during that, that's, mm-hmm. uh, that semester, that quarter. Um, I've evolved on it since then. 
because I spent 20 years thinking about it. And so someday wow. I'm going to take the things that I learned back back then and put it, I don't know, into its own course or its own book or its own mm-hmm. material so that so that men so that men can see that, right? And so that so that men can so can draw forth some of the inspiration that I did and put it into their lives. And and how but not just that, how, I think people feel that when they encounter it, like the beauty of the beauty of Lord of the Rings for both men and women. And I'll talk about femininity in Lord of the Rings as well, because I've thought a lot about that too, is that you can't necessarily identify what it is about the books. Like, yeah, you can pick out some things, but there's just this feeling from it that you walk away and you're improved for it. And maybe you can say it's because of this or this, but there's some there's something within it, some spiritual. When I say spiritual, I don't mean in a religious sense, although that's part of Lord of the Rings in particular, but there's this spiritual quality where it's nourishing and we can't quite say why it's a sense of like, it's not just that it tastes really good. You know, it, we, we digest it and we take it in and we're changed. Absolutely. Um, Tolkien said regarding Lord of the Rings that he explicitly or specifically removed all explicit references to any sort of religion or whatnot in the world, mm-hmm. in, in his created world. Mm-hmm. Because, because he allowed the the entire story was baked with religious symbolism, and he allowed the symbolism to speak for itself and to imbue the spiritual and religious elements into the story. Hmm. And what's funny is that the the Lord of the Rings world, Middle Earth, actually has a god. Eru, Elu- it, it does. It does. Like like his his mythology and and kind of his world does. But in the Lord of the Rings, there's no. It's not like oh, we must say a prayer to so and so, or here's the specific religious ritual. Yeah. Um. All that's completely removed, but you walk away from it with an unfailing sense of spirituality. It's because he got the archetypes right. He got the symbolism right, and within those symbolisms and archetypes, he built in all the spiritual um, meat, if you will. Of the work, mm-hmm. and and to put a pin on that for the listeners who who haven't perhaps read the Silmarillion, you know the god who creates Middle Earth is called Eru Iluvatar, essentially the 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 Western god equivalent to Yahweh, you might say, and uh, and the devil is Melkor, and there's a whole creation mythology like where the Lord of the Rings universe came from, and so you have God and the devil, but then the the devil Melkor actually comes down to Middle Earth. You know, as as a as a as a warrior, as an actual embodied physical character, and and Sauron is Melkor, who becomes Morgoth, is is Melkor's lieutenant. So the Sauron mm-hmm. that we encounter in the movies and in the Lord of the Rings books, who's a pretty pretty evil bad dude, is just like a thirty percent sh- pale shadow, almost reflection of how evil Morgoth is at yeah. the at the mo- highest, most transcendent level. And so that Eru Iluvatar exists, and this whole religious structure is known. Like Gandalf in The Lord of the Rings is actually this divine being, right? Like, yeah, exactly. And that's why they have to fight, right? And so like, but this whole religious world is just kind of known by the characters, but you never actually see them making any prayers to Eru Iluvatar. There's actually even no acknowledgement of it. And you can forgive like, you know, Sam and Frodo and the hobbits for not knowing about it because maybe they don't. But like Aragorn knows, mm-hmm. <laughs> Legolas knows for sure, but you never feel that. Like you never feel that like, oh, here, we're walking with Gandalf, this divine being. Like you don't ever feel it. Yeah. It is remarkable how he put together his world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
And so I think that's the level I'm grateful that the Lord of the Rings movies exist and they even bastardized them with the Rings of Power, which I didn't watch and refused to watch. But it just kind of shit. The Rings of Power might be a, a great object lesson in terms of, you know, we have this great artistic tradition, this incredible artistic tradition for generations, you know, and then that produces the Lord of the Rings as this singular work of, of it's all, fantasy is an insult because fantasy is much smaller now than but well, mm-hmm. the singular creative literary work. And then what do we get? We get Amazon's Rings of Power, where they shoehorn in all these like must reflect the modern world values into something that transcends it. They failed miserably because they would, but well, it, it is it is remarkable actually, like how much they did feel with it. I mean, and, and, and right rightly so. Um, recently, I watched the Truman Show. And, you know, the movie. And I looked it up afterwards. Budget, $60 million. To put in perspective, they made that. The Truman Show. I mean, like a a really good movie for $60 million. And Amazon spent the equivalent for for each episode of the series. And it was uh, just a pile of crap. I mean, it was so bad. It was so, 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 so bad. Um, And they just don't get... You could have the best world you want, but it it ultimately comes down to story. And Tolkien knew how to tell the story. He understood the archetypes. Mm -hmm. Um, And this was because, I mean, he was a very devout Catholic and in tune with what he believed was the best story ever told. And he wrote that into his world in in many different ways. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Can we talk about story for a second? Of course. Okay, because I I brought it up with, um, in a way but I didn't use this term with that meal that I ate at that restaurant Clooney in New Zealand, the way that the meals were laid out. And this has been all the four and five Michelin star restaurants that I've been to, which isn't many, like two or three over the course of my life. But like the meal is laid out in the form of a story. It tells us, it tells a story through, um, you know, there's the presentation. We're used to stories and meals being like appetizer, which is a certain set of flavors, right? And then main course, which is where the protein is. And then you have dessert, right? Or if you go to like a, a more fancy restaurant, you have like the amuse-bouche, right? And then you have the appetizer, and then you have the salad course, right? Right. So at Clooney, it was it told this whole story uh, of um, of what Maori food was like in New Zealand, mm-hmm. fused with sort of Western cooking techniques, right? Very artistic. But the reason why the one of the, one of the reasons why the meal was exhausting was because taking in that much information through the taste buds is tough. You know, mm-hmm. it's not a, it's not a, it is not a fat data pipe. Let's, let's say, right. But it was yeah. this total experience of like, uh, of, of that evolved and flowed through all these different flavors and textures and, 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 and shapes and visuals and, and, and all, and, and sound and all that stuff was woven into it. It was really, really special. And we're used to thinking of story in the way of like a movie or a book. But one of the things that you've helped me see is that story actually shows up in in classical music as well. Right. And that's, and that's something that I'd like you to talk about because classical music is something that I've enjoyed, but it's not something I know a whole ton. I know a whole ton about. So like, um, what are some of your favorite narrative classical pieces? Let's say we'll start there. This is a great question. There's, there's so many different ways to go with this. Mm -hmm. Um, one thing that I'd, I'd like to point out, I actually, funnily enough, mentioned this in a video about ballet. I, it's called something like why, I, I actually have no clue what it's called. Um, ballet and femininity or something yep. like that. But uh, anyways, yeah, yeah it, it's there. But I talk about the motion in music. 
and and movement in music is something that's incredibly important because whatever you listen to, you really have to to keep in mind the the perceived motion that's occurring. So mm-hmm. I, I believe in this video I mentioned something like Swan Lake, where hopefully I don't make a fool of myself right here, but it's you know do 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 and as it's doing that. You, you get this sense that it's climbing, that it's actually seeking to break out of something. Okay. The, it, it, like it goes up the first time and it doesn't quite get it. A little closer there. And then it goes. All right. So like that, that attempt has failed. And the reason I bring this up in the context of story is because if you track that motion through a piece, that tells you a little bit about the story that's being told. Now, Obviously, this will change a lot depending on the era of music that you're listening to. So uh, this is primarily the romantic era of classical music. Um, I'll, for, for our intents and purposes in this conversation, I'll break it up into, let's say, three periods, Baroque, classical, and romantic. Mm-hmm. All right. So Baroque would be Bach, um, very, uh, yep, very counterpoint. Um, I'm trying to think of... Can, can you hum Vivaldi real fast? No. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, but, but four seasons. So if anyone's my aware of that. classical piece, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's wonderful. Um, but so you have Baroque there and then you have classical. And so here, I mean, Mozart is the, the exemplar of that. Um, and classical, actually, my, my appreciation of classical and Baroque has, has augmented uh, um, quite a bit in the past few months. And I can get into that because I think it's, it's really exciting, kind of what I've, I've come across, at least personally there. But all this being said, bring it home to movement. What you have with romantic, move, or romantic music is you have this, this story and this emotion that's, that's based around the movement. Beethoven, technically classes, um, he is the bridge between kind of classic and romantic periods, but mm-hmm. I would say overwhelmingly romantic. Wagner, romantic. Um, all of the the great opera composers, not all, but you know a good amount, kind of there in the romantic tradition. Wagner, Verdi, uh, Puccini, definitely, where you really feel this emotion. Um, Tchaikovsky, another composer who did Swan Lake, he's obviously in this romantic tradition as well. And so, all this to say, the motion that you observe, you have to track it because it. it it's the motion that builds tension in the music mm-hmm. because as you get the do 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 you know mm-hmm. that is each time that it goes up you're building towards something mm-hmm. and so um and then you kind of go to to a different um fast forwarding in that in that piece is and so you like all of this if you're following it you have this kind of the do 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 it's this this back and forth and then and then almost a stalling of the do 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 i really hope my pitch is on here but um actually it's really impressed I've never done this before, so try my try my best here. But that's great, man. I'm smiling. Really, I love it. Um, yeah. If you're if watching on YouTube, you can see probably how red my face is right now. Um, it's, it's anyways, what what we have is is the movement creates tension, and I think what in that tension creates the story, 
And this is so reflective of our own lives because what is it that we do in our own lives? Well, if we're living, we're moving, you know, because really to be stalled in life, actually you have a sense of dread. You have a sense of, of a death of sorts. And so, mm. so to be alive is to be in motion in many ways. And what you have with this music and the reason partially why it resonates with us, this specific you know, subset of, of classical music is because it's an exploration of that motion, of the conflict that arises from it. Because being in motion, being in life, you are going through the inevitable conflicts that arise, the triumphs and the, and the, you know, the falls that you go through. And it's how you ultimately overcome it and how you ultimately resolve it. Mm. That is, that is beautiful. But classical music, you cannot listen to it with a sense of you're just going to consume it or you're going to be, it's going to be in the background music because first of all, that's not how life is. Life is written, not just by like, okay, I want to figure out what's on my, you know, what's written in my obituary. That would be if you wanted just to consume it excuse me, and to know what it's about. But no, life is lived in the experience, in the living. And likewise, classical music is lived in the, in the you know, moment of it, in the journey of what's there. And so that's just one of the reasons um, I, I really find that beautiful. Now, if you'll allow me to kind of keep going down here. I will allow I would, you. Great, thank you. That um, I'd also say what you have with opera, which is so great, is um, exactly what you have in Lord of the Rings. And I'll use this to, to you know, provide an example that probably more people can relate to. But with Lord of the Rings, you have these themes okay, that are associated with certain things. So the ring kind of has this mysterious aura associated with it. It's what, mm-hmm. what plays during the title screen um, of, each, of each movie. The Shire obviously has a very recognizable theme that comes on. And, and these themes are kind of recycled throughout. And what these are essentially are a, a, a type of, I don't know, type of music is not the, the right word, but a, an aspect of music that was um, first pioneered in opera called a leitmotif. Mm. Okay. And what this leitmotif is, is it's a certain theme associated with different people or characters, even ideas in the stories. Okay. So the master of this, is Wagner. I mean, Wagner, he has white motifs for everything. He has light motifs for a person. He has light motifs for the the sound of the steps of that person. Mm-hmm. You know, like like I mean, it really he he gets so insanely complex in his light motifs. And this is why like Wagner, you first experience him, it's just completely, completely overwhelming. But the more you enjoy of him, the more you get out. I mean, it is, you know, prime example of this. Um, because his his motifs as they're as they're recycling through, um, they, they keep on coming back and actually kind of telling the story and cueing you in on on, oh, what to think, oh, this person's coming, or oh no, it's this theme that's that's actually telling the story. And this is how the story is told. This is why mu- opera is, is so great, because it's telling the story not only through music, but also in certain composers, you get it through the use of leitmotifs, of, of themes that are associated with certain people, um, with certain actions, with certain ideas, with ideals, even themselves. Um, love, uh, like, like the love theme, the, the this, the that, the, the other. I mean, it's all there. So, so the, the storytelling in opera is something beautiful that you get. Um, Puccini does it very well. Um, 
very, very well is also probably perhaps even in a more immediately accessible way to Wagner. Um, in Puccini, what he does beautifully in the music is he, he brings objects to life. And I'm going to try to go into this now. Part of this, to, to really get an appreciation, you, you, you do have to see the opera, yeah. um, unfortunately, because it, it's just something where you, you won't totally get the context of what's going on. But in this one opera, La Boheme, it's um, basically these, these, these young boys, young men um, in Paris and just enduring the cold of the Paris winter. And they're all bohemian and they're having to, at one point they go and they um, actually burn their, you know, play manuscripts and whatnot. And, and like, you know, they're burning their chairs for heat and whatnot. And anyways, they throw in a first page of the play and they throw it into the fire. And you hear in the orchestra this kindling, almost as like the fire is, is starting and everything drops back. And it's like, how did he, how did he put the kindling of a fire into music? It's beyond me, but, mm. but he does it wonderfully. And so that's just another form of storytelling. And I'm going to wrap up here with one third. So Keep we have, going. you know, the first being um, the, the romantic kind of storytelling Um in, in following the motion of music, you know, and in, in following the journey that's going on. I mean, just listen to Beethoven and you'll get that immediately. The, the second is the musical storytelling, you know, re- returning to these themes, returning to whether it's light motifs or simply um, almost the embodiment of ideals or characters in different musical pieces. You have that in, in opera very well, uh, which of course has made its way into modern cinema. Um, and, th- and then lastly, what you have is perhaps the most surprising of them all and what I said earlier about Baroque and classical music, which is that Baroque and classical, we, we know that it's good, but it, it's kind, to be honest, it's kind of hard to get into because it almost feels a little bit bland, okay? And what I realized, what I said that I'm very excited about it, is that I realized that we are listening to Mozart with ears that were tuned by Beethoven. Mm, yeah, you, I remember you said that to me. I'm like, oh, that's, that's awesome. Elaborate on that. Yeah, so, so Beethoven, again, he will hit you over the head with emotion. Yeah, he, no. he will just, he will say, this is how you should feel. And he will, <laughs> you know, bring it to you. And damn it, like you will feel that way, you know, mm-hmm. because, because he's so good at, at evoking that emotion. Now, and, and he tells a story by doing so. Um, now, what you have with Mozart, Mozart's the complete opposite. He says, I'm going to make something neutral, and I'm going to allow you to bring your emotion to it. I'm going to mm. actually let you tell the story. And so if anyone is familiar with filming, for example, so, so you can record. Most cameras have a default you know, color profile that they have, mm-hmm. but oftentimes you can record in log. And so what it actually looks like is essentially... It, it almost kind of looks black and white, yeah, but gray. what it allows you to do is it goes, yeah, it's gray, and it, it allows you to go in and add your own color to have it specifically how you want it. And once I understood this about Mozart and about Bach before him, then I suddenly, my appreciation of it jumped immensely. Because mm-hmm. what I realized is that Mozart's music, the majority of it, if I can you know, take the liberty to say that, classical music, of Baroque music, it's written in a way that allows you to bring your story to it. 
and actually apply that story to your life. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I, I just, it. It, it really, yeah, really transformed the way I listen because now I listen to Mozart pieces and like, I, these, this could be used in a variety of different scenarios. You know, if you kind of picture your life as a little movie that you're going, it's like, well, this piece, it could be something like a nice morning, a nice autumn morning where you're going and just making a warm cup of coffee and sitting down. It could be driving in traffic. It could also be, you know, like phones ringing oh. at the office. It could be, uh, you know, even a, a sports game or something. Like it could be so many different things, but it's almost what what you bring to it. So it's it's an acquired taste, but what's nice about it is that if you want to tell your story, Mozart and Bach provide a platform in which you can go and listen to their music, but write your own story into it alongside them. I really like that because I get it now. I, I, I get what you're saying. It's like, you could look at Beethoven like, oh, to joy, right? Oh, to joy is going to beat you over the head with a club of happiness, of joy, really. It's like, you will feel this right now and you <laughs> don't have a choice in the matter. And it's like, yes, I do, I feel it, right? But then when you listen to, by, by comparison, you listen to Mozart and it feels very delicate and very, you know, it's, it's, it's expert, it's, it's beautifully composed, but it's not as present. Like you have to kind of reach out to it a bit more. Mm-hmm. But I get that's a stylistic thing. And I like what you said that there are these three phases of what we call, quote, classical music. You know, there's Baroque, classical, and romantic. And we just hear it's all classical music now. It all just kind of, kind of mm-hmm. lumped together. But these actually, these three distinct phases are all so different. And the word itself kind of obscures our ability to understand it in, yeah. in general. Like, how is Beethoven different from Mozart? How is Puccini different from Verdi? How are they different from Shostakovich and all this stuff? And, and, and I, I want to point something else out that, um, that you said. It's that to really appreciate a classical music piece, if you can't be in the auditorium or you can't be at the symphony, it's not meant to be put on in the background. No, like, like, you know, and that's, and that's, it's a lot of people use it now for ambiance. Like, I'm just going to put on whatever and like, cool, fine. But to really appreciate classical music is like a 60 minute effort of sustained attention. And so I'm just trying to imagine someone being like, yeah, get your favorite comfortable chairs, chair, sit down on it, put it on a speaker and sit there and listen and throw your phone across the room and sit there and listen to it. And that's how you're meant to consume it. Not as this background kind of experience, you know to what you're doing. And if I can just jump off that for a second, I think what creates that feeling in people is the idea that really the only time they ever experience classical music now or anything close to it is movie soundtracks. Like yeah. I heard someone say that movie soundtracks are our current version of classical music, but it's always background to action, yeah. right? Like some of the classic soundtracks like Star Wars, you can go see the symphony perform Star Wars while the movie's playing, but mm-hmm. that's not the same thing as like, you know, you're just going for the music. So yep. we always experience like classical orchestras now as background to action when it's like, no, you're supposed to enjoy this thing for what it is. Do we, and, and I, I was going to ask, do we have the sustained attention? And instead I'm going to declare, we have to develop the sustained attention because we're missing it. We're missing it. Absolutely. I mean, that is, that is really one of, one of the biggest things is that when you get into classical music, it is active listening. It is mm-hmm. not passive listening. And Perhaps the hardest part about that is the attention. It is the twitch. It is the, uh, gotta like do something. It's hard to sit down. It really is like hard to sit down. You know, um, 
what what I like in life, I have a, a big appreciation of the little things that allow me to kind of do nothing. Um, technically doing something, but it allows me to enjoy doing nothing better. Um, so for, you know, for me personally, this is like my pipe. It's something that mm-hmm. I can, I can, I can smoke and kind of focus on my breath because it's that, but it almost allows me to get into a more meditative state and do nothing better than simply sitting in a chair and doing nothing. Um, mm-hmm. And so <laughs> I, I, yes. I, I yes, hope I this it. like, I get it. It makes some sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not doing anything, but, but I'm not doing nothing. Ex- exactly. It, it allows me at least to even just like the whips of smoke that, that float in front of my face, it, it captivates my attention just enough to, to kind of tolerate me and not drive me to insanity by sitting in a room by myself. You know that? Mm-hmm. Like, cause it is really hard to sit by ourselves. But anyways, all this to say, it's a habit that we have to cultivate. And with classical music, Part of the difficulty is, of course, for in the first place, finding that um, attention and, and the time to sit down. You know, you, you shouldn't, you, I'll say it here, if you're listening, you shouldn't start out with something that's an hour long, okay? Oh, what great. you should do is, is start out with something that's much shorter. You should start out with um, Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata. Now, okay. I will tell you, I, I'll say for, for the sake of a, a pure beginner, just start out with the with the beginning part, the part that everyone knows. Um, uh, the, the Moonlight Sonata is, is actually so. It's actually um, there are three parts to it, and most people only recognize the first. Mm-hmm. Um, the third is like insane. It's amazing when you listen to it. So so definitely listen to the whole thing. But if you don't do anything more, I would say take a moment before you go to bed. Light a candle, sit down, either have like a, a nice warm cup of tea. If you're the whiskey drinking folk, you know, perhaps get a nice little glass of whiskey. Just sit there with the lights dimmed, put it on, just kind of close your eyes and listen. Mm. You don't even have to close your eyes. You can just, the lights are dimmed, just sit there, listen to it, take it in and follow it and follow the developments that go along with it. And it's just short enough to, to hold your attention. You're not going to go crazy sitting by yourself. It's, it's going to be good. Okay. So do that and just experience that. Just, just have that as the beginning. Now, after that, what you will get better at doing is you will actually get better at tracking the developments in the piece of music. So kind of going back to this idea of motion, um, I would add to that idea of motion. I would add to that actually the idea of having different choruses or themes that are come that come up or reiterated in different ways. So in our, you know, contemporary music, we have verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge. So really verse, chorus, bridge, you have kind of three different melodies that are going to be there, but it's the same thing. But what if you actually took one of those melodies and then you transform it five different times to where it's a variation of that initial one, but it's still, you can still track it. So it's in that light. What you get better at doing every time you listen to classical music and, and you train your ear for it is you get better at recognizing how the composers transform these different melodies and how they're actually telling a story of that throughout the entire piece. So they'll start typically like take a Mozart concerto. Um, a very typical progression of it is that you start out um, with something that's, you know, kind of middle of the road speed, okay, and in uh, tempo and whatnot. And then, and then the second movement, 
is, is a reduction in tempo. It's more slow. And so it might reiterate in a different way, in a different light, in a more somber light, mm. the themes that were presented in the first. And then the third is going to be almost the apotheosis of that in the different directions. It's going to take it up in tempo. It's going to do more complex variations and ultimately uh, arrive at an, an intense finale that you're getting to. That is, you know, a, a typical uh, concerto, which is also just while we're on the topic of Moonlight Sonata, one of the reasons why that is so interesting because the first movement is the slow one, and so mm-hmm. it's it's a, almost an inversion of, in some ways, of kind of the traditional form. But he's still able to uh, arrive home with it in magnificent ways. But um, I, I guess to bring this all home for our purposes, like kind of tracking the the development of themes as they go along, not just the motion, but tracking the different melodies and how they'll evolve, how they'll change, how they'll mm-hmm. get melted down and then reconstructed in something similar. Part of this is the magic of the music. And I think probably for beginners, that's one of the hardest things to wrap wrap your mind across because you can't, you don't necessarily see that, oh, melody B is in any form related to melody A. It actually is. But you don't you don't see that connection. But the more time you spend with it, the more you'll be able to to find those connections, and then you'll you'll enjoy. Again, you'll enjoy um, being able to see how that story is told, how how the the dots are connected. You know, I know a lot of people have um, in their in their bedrooms they have a TV and they'll watch movies in bed. I I could never mm-hmm. do such thing, but, but like that, a lot of people do that, and it sort of makes me think that well, what if you know, if you're one of those people listening that, that has that, like, what if you got a pair of stereo speakers, like not a little, one of those little Bose speakers, like I've got a little Bose speaker. I like it. It sounds really good, but it's like essentially mono. It's like sound coming from one point. Like you get a pair of stereo speakers and you put them at the foot of the bed with the TV, right? And you light that little candle and you sit and you put the, and you put the music on and rather than watching a movie while you go to bed, like you listen to a piece of classical music and do exactly what you're saying, Evan, which is like, no, engage with it. Listen to it thoughtfully. Like, really be present with it and hear these things going on. And mm-hmm. and what a joy! What a joy that could be. You don't. Have, it doesn't have to be every night, but just try it and see. You know, see what you might see or hear what you might hear. Rather, that takes you into the world of classical music. You know, in the broadest sense, right? Not the specific period, and and what you've been missing. Right, because because cla- like um, orchestral music for film, mm-hmm. what orchestral like, o- what orchestral music for film is supposed to do is it's supposed to give you insight into the emotional state of the characters on screen, or tell you how to feel about the moment. Right. So so if there were no music during a movie, you would watch it and and you wouldn't necessarily know how someone is feeling unless they're a really good actor. So. Music is there to tell you about the inner emotional states of the character and then also to help guide us in how we're supposed to feel, right? So it sort of serves those two purposes. And it's always being driven by the visuals, right? The, the music on, and the score has to fit the visuals because if it doesn't fit the visuals, like it's not going to make sense, right? And so, so the music is secondary to the, to the visual content. Now, what you're talking about with classical music is it's music that's telling a story for its own sake with no visuals that need to be associated with it. It's not, it, it's inviting you into the experience rather than enhance, like a, a musical experience rather than enhancing a visual experience. And those are two very different things. 
And so the ability to sit there and allow yourself to be taken away by someone who's so much a greater composer than anyone who composes for film. Like, yeah, Howard Shore is great. You know, the guy who did the Inception, uh, the Inception, that guy, you know, these great composers for film. They're wonderful composers, but I think that all they would all say like, yeah, no, Bach, Bach had it going on. That's the guy. And so, and so to really allow yourself to have 15 minutes or 20 minutes to, to experience it in the way that you're meant to on its own terms, like I'm actually, I don't, I'm, I need to get some stereo speakers and do that tonight because I've never done that exercise. Right. But I can yeah. feel that like there's so much in there and there's this, and you said it earlier, there's this galaxy, this universe of classical music that's in the public domain and yeah. you have YouTube, like mm-hmm. it's all there. It's free. Yeah. Right. Or yeah. Spotify for that matter. There, there is. Well, first of all, before I get into the nitty gritty here, um, definitely love what you say. I, I think it's it, it would be something remarkable to do, and I would even say life changing if someone were to not even not even every night or every other night, but once a week, actually take the time to slow down and listen to a piece and listen intentionally. Mm-hmm. I think that would be life changing because part of Part of what that does, what I find that it does when you listen closely to a piece, uh, particularly when you're listening to it, you know, a, a piece that's perhaps more, you know, um, thoughtful or, or kind of slow or almost, you know, takes you into a different world. Um, what you do is you start to, to look for all the different textures there. Mm. You start to recognize, I can listen to a piece 50 times and on the 51st time that I listen to it, I'll recognize something that this one instrument's doing in the corner of the orchestra that I didn't yeah. hear before. And, and so it actually causes you to look for those things. And I think to go back to the example I gave earlier of writing the journal, what this does is it allows you to have the same recognition of the beautiful things in your own life. Mm. I think that's really what it trains. For me, it's trained that in many ways. It's trained, again, that sense of, of looking for things and in every time seeing something new or hearing it from a different perspective, finding out, oh, what's going on in this part of the orchestra? Mm-hmm. You can apply that to your own life. See, wow, what is different about the walk to work today? What is, what is something new that I haven't seen here? What is this one person doing? You know, that however you want to put it together, I think you'll ultimately be able to apply it to your life. So there's that. In terms of more nitty gritty stuff, just a thought I had when you were mentioned, you know, public domain and Spotify and stuff. It's all very well and good. Um, one thing that people need to be aware of is that not all performances and recordings are created equal. That is very true. I just I it learned is, that. Yeah, yeah. So look, if you're on my email list, that's something where you'll know that every recording you get is going to be a good one. You know, I'll, I'll make sure yeah. that it's a good recording and performance. Um, but to understand what makes a good performance. That's another thing that takes time. And I had, I think I told you about this, Will, but I'll repeat it um, to people listening. I had the funniest moment where I remember when I was getting into this, I would, um, I would be looking for, you know, recordings of pieces. And I, I couldn't tell you why, but I'd listen to a piece five times. And then when I came on the recorded version by the Berlin Philharmonic, I would settle and be like, oh yeah, it, I, I like this one the most. Yes, they're pretty and good. 
And yeah, and it's not because they're new, by the way. It's not because they have the, the highest fidelity recordings. Mm-hmm. It's because all of them were coming from about the same time. Like almost all of them were from the 70s, you know, maybe into the 80s a little bit. Um, and and I was like, I don't know what it is about this. But for some reason, whenever I listen to them, I it, it's always their recording that I like the most. Well, come to realize, um, they're actually all, almost all those recordings uh, by the Berlin Philharmonic. If you look it up on Spotify, I think it's technically like Berliner Philharmonica. Mm-hmm. Um, it it is all they are all conducted by Herbert von von Karajan, mm-hmm. and this one man who is just gosh, I mean, one of the best conductors to ever grace the stage. Oh, definitely, yeah. def, argue, arguably of the entire twentieth century, but like just phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And you realize that he's able to pull things out of the orchestra that other people simply aren't. And so, like, b- because we make fun of conductors all the time, uh, you know, they, they kind of do the, their, we don't really know what they're doing. They're kind of bouncing around. It's like, are they just waving a wand? Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, they have an incredibly tough job of, of they're trying to, I, I was blown away kind of as I began to learn more about this. And I still, to be honest, um, could stand to learn much more. But I know that one thing that conductors are trying to do is they're trying to get the timbre of each instrument. So let's say like there are four horns, okay? Identical horns in the sense of the same type of horn, but they're all different manufacturers. Mm-hmm. Well, that brass is going to be slightly different. Like they're, they're going to be small, um, whether it's in the actual raw materials that make the horn or if it's in the construction process and what the the different alloys that they make it with, you know, however long it sits to, to to cool, to heat, to bend, like whatever it is, they're going to have a slightly different timbre each time. And so the conductor, an astute conductor, what he or she will do is will look at the person performing and they'll be able to get the whole section together to to actually make that timbre the same. I mean that's it's incredibly difficult by 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 hammering home to the players to play differently. So so a player could play the like let's put it this way a player could say play the same piece of music on the same instrument, but if there are four different conductors, it could come out four different ways because mm-hmm. each conductor would have a different ear for how that's actually how that needs to be performed. Um, and so there's that. There's also what I notice in Karyon is the motion that he introduces. Okay. So we talked about this upwards motion again with Swan Lake. Do, 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 do. And you get that naturally in the dynamics of every orchestra and the sense of kind of the, the crescendo, you know, um, the, the kind of up and down of the music, the, the dynamics, the intensity, you get that. And it feels like this up and down. What Karyon can do is he adds this other dimension of, of filling it out sideways, mm. which is, it's so hard to describe. I, I really don't know how, um, other than you just have to go and listen to a ton of music and, you know, listen to his recordings as opposed to others. But he almost adds like a heartbeat to it, to where you get this sense of, of this, mm-hmm. this up and down, this vertical motion, but almost, he adds this heartbeat to where it's every time it, on every beat, it's expanding as well. It's and volume. just the whole body of it, it's, it's insane. It's, it's remarkable how good of a composer he is. But to, to bring this all home, I hope 
A, this tangent proves a little bit interesting in the sense of, you know, learning what conductors actually do, but, but B, knowing that the, uh, recordings you listen to actually do matter. And in fact, will, um, will change the way that you appreciate the music because the masters, you can't put words to it, but the people who are really good at what they do, it's good and it's different and you'll know it when you hear it. Yeah. Yeah. Just real quick about that. Like, um, when I was in college, I, I, when I was, went to uh, the school bookstore, for whatever reason, the bookstore had like stacks of classical CDs at the takeout, you know, the checkout line, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and uh, they were like three and four dollars. So I could buy all these um, classical music pieces. And I used to have, when I still had my CDs, like 20 pages full of classical. I'd just buy them. I'd be at the bookstore mm-hmm. and the book is fantastically expensive. So it's like, what's four dollars for a classical CD? Mm-hmm. But then I realized that the, the, the label was Naxos, which is some German mm-hmm. label. And it would always, oh, sorry, uh, Greek. And so um, they would always, it, it took me a while of listening to them again in the background while I was studying to realize that like these recordings aren't actually very good. And the performances, like they're not bad, but they're not great, right? You know, and then when I discovered uh, the German label Deutsche Grammophon, which is like this big gold kind of banner and really experienced like, high fidelity recording, best performers in the world. It really brought everything to life. And it was almost like listening to those old Naxos CDs was like, what is this? What have I done? Yeah. So, and so that really matters. And so the, la- the label that you get it from really matters. And, you know, Lord's sake, if you're going to listen to a 60 minute classical piece on YouTube or on Spotify, pay for YouTube and Spotify. So like an ad doesn't come up like 15 minutes in, you know, that'd be awful. awful. Can you imagine you're just start getting taken away and then the algorithm serves you some ad for like Outback Steakhouse or something like that. Just throw myself out the window. So it does, it does actually matter like to, to buy a CD or buy the MP3, you know, or, or buy the WAV file or whatever, buy the highest resolution you can. But like, really set aside time to experience these things fully if you're going to listen to them and, and don't don't allow it to be commercialized so like to really yeah. put some thought and care into it right and then so um and so the other thing i'll say about composers is just that you know, there's the way in which they they get like composer or conductor sorry com- conductor thank you um that a that a conductor gets these four different horns with four different manufacturers and four different Right, to, to all have the same timbre or at least complementary timbres to form that that texture of, of that particular mm-hmm. section. But there's and, and then there's the the up and down motion, the, the tension, and then there's the the pace, right? Like the, the pace speeding up and, and slowing down, right? Rather than a consistent flat pace, you can modify that. There's the volume that you can make it go seem to go further away and then be more in your face. Right. And that's what I think what what I've listened to the limited amount that I listened to carry on is I listened to his Beethoven's ninth symphony. Right. And so mm. the way that he as, as the conductor interpreted the ninth symphony with the, how fast it is, it's just so fast and it's so in your face in terms of the tempo, right? Of course, all the players are outstanding, but it's so much faster than where, that I would have ever been used to hearing it, like maybe 10 yeah. to 20% faster, but then the music would pull back quieter than I'd ever heard it. And then when it comes forward, it comes forward so much more powerful. It's like being knocked back in my chair. And that's all the interpretation. Yeah. That's all the interpretation of the conductor. Because to some extent, it's written into the music, but the music is the music. The way that the, music, the conductor interprets it for his own character, the character of the players, the character of the audience, and carry on as being a German man and, and imbuing it with a German national character, 
is very forceful, very straightforward, as opposed to the way an American uh, orchestra might perform it. It's just, it, it felt like this, I'm hearing it for the first time. I'm hearing this yeah. symphony the way that Beethoven might have performed it for the first time. And so conductors Absolutely. matter more than we might imagine. And I would imagine conductors have specialties. The only conductor that I know of, other than Carrion, is Leonard Bernstein, right? Mm. And which reminds me, there is a series on YouTube of Leonard Bernstein teaching, uh, teaching music. And so I'll post that in the show notes as well. I remember Lovely. listening to that. Yeah, it's like the basics of music all the way up through. And so it's like, so, so I hope this is giving the listeners some sense of like, classical music is more than just what plays in the background, you know, during a nice dinner. It can also be that, but it's almost, it's almost like there's this experience that's waiting to be had. If you can set aside the time and intention and attention to have it. And I think that could be such a mind opening experience for people. Absolutely. I I surely hope it is. Mm -hmm. I would recommend just anyone who wants to do this practical thing, like, you know, tonight, Go and listen to the first part of Moonlight Sonata. Either that, or if you want something that's a little bit more lengthy, but and in more subtle but profound, is the prelude to Act One of Lohengrin. Just oh my gosh, Will, you've got to listen to that. Okay, and the strings come on; it, it's amazing, and then you get smaller and more and more layers each time as it goes on. I mean, it's really just—it's so remarkable. And, and it takes you about until he basically, so it's about an 11 minute piece and the whole first six minutes works up to this climax. And then you get the climax, maybe, you know, six minutes, six and a half in. And then the rest of it is kind of almost like the fade out and the resolution back to where it started in the beginning. But it's remarkable. And it sounds so like, that sounds boring, right? Like, okay. So it goes, I spend six minutes waiting to get like one crash and then we go, but it is Oh my gosh, addictive, really. Like it, it's just, it, it pulls you in. I told you that the first time I listened to it, I just had to stop what I was doing, go and sit down because I was hypnotized by it. Mm. And if you actually, if you actually, like, don't listen to it in your car on your way to work, don't freaking do that. You know, like, like actually <laughs> give it the space it deserves, yeah. you know, and sit down with it. And if you do that, you have to have a reverence with it. It's the same thing. Like, I mean, there's so many, um, parallels here to kind of a, a spiritual practice of of sorts. You know, you can't like sure you can you can pray on the fly. There's nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. But like, if you actually take a moment to sit down, gather yourself, gather your thoughts, get into a, a private space and pray, it's a different you know type of prayer in in a, in a way. Um, I don't want to go too much into theology here, but like just just in, in the sense yeah. the the you know. Um, the experience of it is very different. And, and so the, the same thing, certainly without a doubt, applies to the experience of how you listen to classical music. And also just an encouragement to, to give it space, meaning like don't listen to it in headphones. Like there's nothing wrong with headphones. If you've got a pair of AirPods, fine. But to really, let, to really put it on speakers and to let the music propagate through the air rather than, you know, pressed against your head. Like I have a very nice pair of AKG pro engineer headphones that I'm wearing right now. And, and, uh, and they're very nice. And, 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 and I come from a pro engineering background and I'm grateful to have them, but I would still buy a pair of speakers so that I could feel the music move through the space that I'm in 
rather than having it just so close up up against my head. And that's yeah. a really important part of it too, because that's how you that's that's closer to how you would experience it in person. Yeah, yeah. And, and then obviously the in person experience is, of course, um, I mean, not, nothing beats it. You you feel the the impact of the drums in your chest the same mm-hmm. way you would at a you know at a pop concert or something with just the, the bass kick kind of really hitting into your chest. I mean, you feel the resonance of the of the instruments. Mm-hmm. That's why it, people who love classical music or opera or whatnot, it's like they have to go see it live. Yeah. The, the recordings are nice, but they're simply substitutes until they can go see it live the next time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when you go to an opera and you see the soloists, you know, the, 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 the singers, the, the uh, uh, soprano or the tenor up on stage singing, and there's no microphone on them. And you're yeah. hearing this space, this throat projecting sound all the way through this entire hall and filling it with just one person's voice hitting this note perfectly in time. It's, it's glorious. It's glorious. It really is remarkable. And opera is just as ridiculed in Western culture and just as lowest common denominator as like Italian culture that you said earlier. It's like, it's mm-hmm. not over till the fat lady sings, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's how much we know about opera, right? It's like, but like, exactly. are you actually listening to the singing? Yeah. It's, it's really good. And it's just totally, again, like you have to kind of develop the ear for it. You have to um, go and spend some time with it. I, I certainly want to in the, in the work that I'll be putting out, um, want to dive more into opera and how mm. to make that more accessible. Um, because certainly like in the, in the States, it's, it's not super accessible even in terms of like being able to see one. Whereas like in Europe, sure, it's still, you know, relatively obscure the same way that like listening to classical music it would be but at least there are outlets to go and see it and you can't really get it until you go and see it like it's the same thing as you you don't you can read a shakespeare play yeah you know but but you're supposed to see it performed you yeah. you have to see it performed and it's the same thing with an opera it's like you could listen to the recording but at some point you really got you have to go see it performed because you don't know what the story is you don't know like you have to see it on stage you have to see it acted out you know mm-hmm. there's there's all this so Anyways, I uh, definitely hope to be producing some materials in terms of helping people get into that because that world is amazing. I have, I've very quickly fallen in love with it, and mm-hmm. I hope to help others do the same. It shows. It shows. I know it's getting a little late over there, but and so I just want to offer everyone, and I'll put this in the opening monologue too, everyone listening, you now have a homework assignment. Your homework assignment is, is to put on Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata or Act 1 to Wagner's Lohengrin on as speakers, not if, the entire act one, just, oh, just the, the prelude. prelude. The prelude, <laughs> the entire act one would be quite a while. Okay, and then to give it and to give it your full attention tonight, after listening to this, set aside ten or fifteen minutes, however much is both of them. Really listen to it, engage with it, and write down your thoughts. And I would like you to email me at rewire at renovmen.com. And then I want them to email you too, Evan. And what, what how would, where Wait, would you like? Rewire at renovmen? Yeah, I started a re, rewire at renovmen.com. It's for the, it's, Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. So like, so, cause at the end of the fifth video, you know, I, 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 I offered people a way to contact me after Great. listening to awesome. it. So awesome. it's a rewire awesome. at renovmen.com. So you can contact me there. Cause that's how we'll know that people listen. Where do you want people, like this, this is not the end of the conversation, but I want people to do this homework assignment and to write down I don't know, a paragraph, a few sentences of their experiences and send it to me and, and send it to you too, Evan. So like where were, if people were to email wow. you, where were the email you? Because I want Evan, people to do this. Yeah, it's, it's just Evan, E-V-A-N, at rewirethewest.com. 
Perfect. Perfect. Because like, because I want to keep the conversation going. I don't want that to be the end. But like, we just we just gave something measurable and actionable for people to do that doesn't take a lot of time. That's very achievable. And I want everyone listening to go do that so they can get just the tiniest taste of what we're talking about. Because one of the things that I struggle with with encouraging people to explore classic Western art in all of its forms is where to begin. Like what, mm-hmm. what's, what's something that I can do? And that's why I do my Poetry for Men series. It's like, here's 20 or 40, sometimes longer minute episodes about the singular work of art and this person that you can read and you can engage with and you can digest and you can move forward with. And so it's the, what's this, this little incremental step that people can take? Because sometimes that's all it takes is just, just the first step. And so I, I wanted to highlight that for people so that they know that they can go do that and, and, and I want people, I want to hear from people what their experience is like. And I think this is a perfect way to do that. Oh, I would love that. That would make my week. If, if you guys do that and actually write in and that would absolutely make my week. I'd love to hear from people. I mean, that would be yeah. wonderful. Me too. Me too. And then we can put it in an email or something like that and send it out to our list. Like, here's what people said. Okay. Yeah. Well, it is, just so you know, uh, we're about seven minutes till 10 p.m. my time. So if there's anything else we'd love to tackle, now let's go ahead and do that. This has been a wonderful conversation. uh, I'm looking at my notes that I've got here and like we started with travel and Italian unification and history and food and um, where did you go? I'm I'm here. Oh, okay. I, I lost the visual. Is your camera? Yeah, um, I can still see you and get everything. Oh, I can't. I can't see you. So you nope. you disappear from the screen. Did you turn your camera off accidentally? I don't think so. Okay. No. Well, okay. Well, yeah. so people will just get to look at me. So um, that's fine. <laughs> Sorry about that. No, that's fine. So so I guess I do have one more question, which is like we've had this wonderful conversation about music, and what's a what's a, a piece of painting or a piece of a, a, a painting or a piece of sculpture that that has been equally moving to you that you can talk about, and then we'll wrap up the conversation. Ooh. Um, putting you right on the spot. Yes, (laughs) you very much are a painting or a sculpture. That's been very moving to me. Hmm. I I think if I can perhaps take a cop out here, um, what, what I like most about, you know, any, any good statue or painting is just, how it inspires me on. Like, I think that a, a great statue, in my mind, any any sort of great statue is something that, like, I just look at it and I get automatically a feeling of heroism, a, a, a feeling of valor, like a feeling of of something that points me to almost an ideal that has has once existed in the collective minds of men and what has now gone as Tolkien might say into the shadows, but it's Mm. still there waiting to be uncovered. And whenever I see something that evokes that it's that, that is, you know, what's really moving to me. Um, so, so almost like there, there are so many sculptures that that happens though, you know, and they don't have to be anything that are even named. It's like, I walk through London and I see a lot of these, there's a surprising amount and they speak to heroism of the past. They speak to these ideals that you want to aspire to. Um, so all of those, I mean, that would be a lot of kind of where I turn. Um, gosh, I, I really, I, I'm not trying to avoid this because I would okay. love to give an answer. I'm just trying to rack my mind right now for like, oh my goodness, what, well, what any painting? Piece, any, any piece of art, like something else. Cause we've given them, we've given people a good place to start with 
with Beethoven and Wagner? Like, what if if you could if you could name one of the things? Like, okay, what would be my second step? Like, for for people that are super uh, enthusiastic, something something personally important to you, something that shows your history, or your character, or your values. Can can I say uh, a work of literature? Of course. Okay. Um, well, then I definitely I definitely turn to Shakespeare, and. And I, I want to. I would perhaps want to say much to do about nothing, but it would require a lot more explanation. Mm. Um, I'll actually turn to Macbeth, and this might be somewhat unexpected, but what I think Macbeth teaches is that what Shakespeare does really good in the beginning of the play is he outlines how Macbeth has nothing to drive him to commit the deeds that he does, namely murder and then more murder and tyranny, um, other than aspiration. There's no, there's no cause for resent. He is completely valued. He is held in high esteem. He is loved. He has everything that he could ask for and more. It is ambition that drives him. And, and I think what's really interesting about Macbeth is that it shows the, the decay of, of, of a man who crosses a line that shouldn't have been crossed and then continues to cross it. He even says at one point, you know, I've I've waded in so deep that were I to wade back, it'd be it'd be just as this the same as if I continue to go further. Mm-hmm. Like he he's he's completely lost himself. Um, and all of all of Macbeth, how in any performance, how you interpret it, I believe it all comes down to the delivery of the tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. It's in this petty pace from day to day um, narrative or monologue at the end. And that's the one where in which he says life is but a walking shadow, you know, and it's, and it kind of the deliverance of that, it makes you ask, is this, is it an affirmation? Is it a resignation? What is it? And actually, if I can plug the, the film, the recent Apple adaptation, like their, whatever the Apple plus version was mm-hmm. phenomenal. I think really? it's, I, I'm, I'm awful with, uh, with actors names, but I think it's Denzel Washington who is Macbeth. And it was, incredible i mean i thought his delivery was spot on of that but all this to say the reason i'd I'd recommend it as a next place to start is because i think it is in terms of how it can apply to one's life it is a very 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 important warning it is it is saying that you might not be a thane of scotland but you could be the macbeth of your own world if you want to and in fact not only could you be but many many people are and I write about this in my in my ebook as well, the, the Bard and the Bees. I have a whole chapter dedicated to it, but it is it is a great place to start to see what Shakespeare can teach us, not only about human nature, but how he can actually save us from ourselves if we are willing to listen to the knowledge that he's putting forward. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for that. Evan, this has been a fantastic conversation. That has been as as narrative story driven uh, as, as and symphonic as some of my favorites. In fact, thinking back of where we began to where we've ended up, it's just like I just I'm overjoyed. Thank you so much. This has been a lovely the, conversation. Yes. So thank you so much, Will. Yeah, thank you. So we'll just send people to rewirethewest.com or where would you like to send people? Yes, uh, rewirethewest.com is great. I actually, funnily enough, I it doesn't even. Uh, link to the YouTube channel. Mm, so (laughs) yes, I I need to do that. Rewirethewest.com is great for resources. Okay. Mm -hmm. So for a lot more of the information regarding classical music, 
uh, classic Russian literature, even some paintings. But excuse me, um, the the YouTube channel just rewire the West. I think that's probably the best place to start. Where I'll I'll be sharing you know messages about beauty, truth, and virtue, and and how you can um, you know look to works and and things that have come before in order to again live out beauty, truth, and virtue in your own life. Wonderful. Thank you so much. This, again, once again, like uh, it's been a joy getting to know you. It's been a joy working with you in this conversation. It's been a joy, and, and I'm looking forward to much more of this in the future. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, Will. episode of the Renaissance of Men podcast. Visit us on the web at renofmen.com or on your favorite social media platform at Ren of Men. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance.